Welcome to Strictly Anime, a podcast for anime reviews and discussions by casuals for casuals. My name is Courtney. And I am Carl. This is episode 38, and we're reviewing Code Geass, Lelouch of the Rebellion, R2, Season 2, Part 2. <laughs> As always, there'll be spoilers throughout this episode, so you've been warned. And as a heads up, Carl and I have both lost our voices over Memorial Day weekend due to a lot of celebratory yelling and cheering. So we're going to sound a little bit off this episode. We're really sorry, and we hope it's not distracting from this awesome review for the finale of Code Geass with a very special returning guest. Yes, hopefully you can hear me. Well, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as Courtney said, on a much, much brighter note, Joining us once again for our Code Geass discussion today is our very special guest and good friend, undisputed pound-for-pound pound Code Geass expert, Aaron from the YouTube channel Under the Bun. Welcome back, Aaron. Welcome, Aaron. And it's great to talk to you <laughs> <Hello>. again. <laughs> Thanks uh, for having me again. Yeah, how's it going? It's going well. Been um, pretty busy, but doing well. Nice, nice. Well, yeah, we're, we're very excited to have you on the show again. Um, and I'm going to throw a, a major question at you right off the bat. Please Pop tell quiz. us, <laughs> please tell us, what have you been watching in the spring 2021 anime season? What's what's like your your top shows right now? Um, so as far as new stuff, um, I'm watching... I don't know if this is really spring, but I'm watching the new uh, My Hero Academia season. Nice. Mm -hmm. um, I've been enjoying that quite a bit, especially because Class B is getting a lot of highlights, and I'm a Class B fan. Yeah, you got your boy and, in there, too. Um, yeah, my boy, Shishida, he's a uh, cosplay as him, so it's <laughs> always fun to see him like get some moments. Um, and I'm also watching Shaman King, which um, it's... It's interesting. I like it so far, but it's going by so fast, which I, I like obviously grew up watching and reading the manga when I was a kid, when it was still on like four kids or whatever. Um, so it's been a long time since I've like visited Shaman King, but I still feel like it's going by really fast. Yeah, mm. we're we're still behind on it, um, but it felt nostalgic in the, in the first couple episodes because I watched it too as a kid and I... I remember the the feelings that I got, the hype that I had around Shaman King. So it's interesting when when I get more caught up. Um, I wonder if I'll still feel that way, knowing that it it speeds ahead a bit. Yeah, it definitely just like jumps arc to arc. Like almost every episode is like a new arc. It feels like. Damn, that's aggressive. That's real <laughs> fast. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like it's um almost like like a kind of like a Full Metal Alchemist Brotherhood situation where the uh, the anime eventually differed from the manga and so i feel like they're just kind of like trying to get through the beginning really fast to get to the parts that were different from the manga so that they can like more accurately depict those parts but it's making the beginning feel so fast and in, in comparison mm, interesting yeah um i was gonna ask how does it compare and i don't know how long ago you'd watched it but how does it compare i guess to the original show um that was produced by four kids um honestly it has been so long since i watched it i wouldn't be able to like accurately um tell you <laughs> <laughs> i do have like the first volume of the manga that i like cracked out while we were like while i was like starting to watch it i've actually been watching it with um with lauren 
So she's been like there with me and I was kind of showing her cause she had never seen the manga. Um, so I was showing her like some of the, the differences and similarities. Um, and like the first volume of the manga ended where like episode two was. So it was mm. like just flying through the volume. Oh, interesting. I did see on YouTube a, um, for the first episode anyway, a one-to-one comparison of certain scenes um, from the, the old school four kids, Shaman King and this reboot. And it, it seemed like they were sticking pretty close to that original one. Um, but yeah, I don't know. We'll we'll see from from Aaron when we finally get caught up, like how how it all plays out. But yeah, I'm 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 enjoying it so far, and and it's good to know that it's gonna it's gonna deviate at some point. I'll be ready for it when it happens. <laughs> yeah, I'm definitely enjoying it um, so far, but I, I hope that it kind of like gives it some room to breathe a little bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I know you mentioned that you've been busy with work, and my other question is. Does that have to do with the most recent Under the Bun video that I believe released a week ago, um, The Misdirection of God of War? Yeah, so that video took me a really long time to make. Um, I actually teased it like a year ago. I reviewed Chex Quest, and um, in that, at the end of that video, I said, like, oh, I'm starting to play through the God of War games. And it was originally just going to be a review of 2018 because um i hadn't played it at that point and i um was just interested in talking about it um being a fan of the classic games and then i decided to replay all of the classic games in preparation for it and then the actual game of god of war 2018 was a lot longer than i was expecting it took Mm. me a very long time to get through it and then like as I was playing it, I just had like this roller coaster of feelings about it that I ended up turning it into this kind of like massive retrospective hour and a half long video instead of just like a simple review. Um, so I spent a long time editing that, uh, but I think it turned out pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I'm pretty it, happy it with how that turned out. Great, and from my end, so I was watching it. Um... I think within a day or two after it came out and and I had to kind of like stop halfway through and I'm almost done with it at this point. But I will say um, when I watched it, when I think this is like in the first five minutes, you, you kind of had this, um, this, guess at who the the key audience is or the key fandom is for god of war 2018 and i was like oh shit busted because i'm guilty of number one i am a a fan of the last of us and number two i've never played a god of war game Hmm. and i was like man he got me (laughs) i got called out (laughs) yeah i mean i definitely don't think god of war 2018 is a bad game at all but just like as a fan of the classic games, there were certain things that just like really stuck out to me with the design of it that I feel like was either a deliberate like misinterpretation of the classic games or are just things that people have been like ignoring to kind of like hype it up. I don't know. It makes more sense if you watch my, my video about it. Um, but just like as a, a fan of those games. And from my point of view, um, again, being someone who has never played a God of War game before 2018, um, you put out some really good points. And I won't spoil anything for any listeners, but also for Carl, who's never um, played the the 2018 God of War. I 
I think you put out some really good and some like critical points that made me kind of rethink my views on the game. Like I, I was like, am I really looking at this game critically or am I just riding the hype wave? So I think it's it, it was a good um, a good retrospective and it was nice to kind of hear your your takes on it as someone who's a diehard God of War franchise fan. I, I could see myself probably doing something similar, like taking a, a more critical look at something like the Legend of Zelda series where I played all the games and... I usually find myself loving the older games a little bit more than the newer games, although Breath of the Wild was fantastic. <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely get that. And, like, obviously with something like with Zelda 2, or even not even necessarily just with Zelda, but, like, games to me, when you're talking about a, a franchise, there's, like, a certain feeling that the games invoke. And I think you can experiment with them. Like, I think, uh, like, two perfect examples are Mario and Mega Man, because there's so many different types of Mario and Mega Man games, yet they all still feel like a Mario game, or they all still feel like a Mega Man game at the end of the day. Um, and the same thing I would say with like Zelda. There are certain like you, you know people who are playing it. They they look for like the dungeons and the item management and the strategic boss fights and things like that. And so if they all of a sudden came out with like a Zelda game that was totally different, I think people would like really notice that. Um, and that's kind of how, like, God of War felt to me. It was a total, like, shift in tone and gameplay style um, and just something I I was really interested in exploring in a in a video essay format. Yeah, well, it was it was a great video. And for for the listeners out there, definitely go check it out. It's worth watching. Um, I, I think you'll be as kind of uh, Put, not put in your place, but I think press to to rethink the way you look at God of War as as I was. <laughs> yeah, and as Courtney mentioned, I, I'm sorry, Aaron, I wasn't able to watch the whole video, but that's only because I've only played the very first God of War game, and actually one of the PSP games as well. Um, so once I complete the whole series and eventually get to the God of War from 2018, I do have or I do plan to watch this video in its entirety because I, I actually enjoy watching a lot of these video game retrospectives. Um, I think there was one that I watched about like GTA four, which was really, really nice, like a nice analysis of that game. Um, so for you to put out this one specifically for the God of War series, I think it will be interesting because I didn't, you know, I didn't expect you to actually, um, enjoy the game as much as you you mentioned that you did in the first five minutes so i watched the first five minutes of this video just so <laughs> everyone's clear um but again I, I plan to save this um um in the back burner once i finish the series but yeah I, it'll be interesting to hear your perspective on it and you know me playing just the first game i know like the first couple god of war uh, games were like hack and slashes and then you get to um, this new era of, of video gaming where it's a little more cinematic, which can be a good, but can also be a bad thing because that cinematic feel um, makes you kind of cut corners on other things. But yeah, I am excited to to watch this video once once I get the full breadth of experience from God of War. And as Courtney mentioned, I encourage all of you who played through this series to to give it a, a watch as well i do have a, a quick question for you aaron will you do a follow-up video if and when the next god of war installment comes out yeah they delayed it um uh, to next year yeah uh, i'm definitely planning on picking that up and i'll do like a review um video for that it probably won't be like an hour and a half long like retrospective 
but I'm definitely going to talk about it and um, kind of dig into that game too a little bit once that comes out, which I'm happy is coming out for PS4 because I'm still having a hard time getting a PS5. But um, <laughs> yeah, I'll definitely be talking about it. <laughs> nice, nice. Well, there you go, Carl. That is your goal is to fly through the God of yes. War series before that game comes out <laughs> and before that review video comes out so that you can watch it. <laughs> yeah, I, I'll pinky promise you that, Aaron. So just hold me to it. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds good. But let's get on to the meat of our discussion, which is Code Geass R2 Part 2. Season 2, Part 2. Part 2, Part 2, all all the twos. Um, But yeah, I guess to start off with my thoughts, um, it was a very interesting second half that just continued to highlight how Lelouch's vengeful journey and lust to overthrow the powers that be um, just came at a very immense personal cost. And it was interesting because I believe episode 12, which was supposed to signify the end of the first half of R2, was like the very last bit of comic relief that we got in the show. Because it just goes all downhill from there. I'm just kidding. But like if the drama and intensity of season one and the first half of season two was dialed up to 11, here for the second part, I feel like it was dialed up to 25. Yeah, I have to agree. Like, just high level, um, my thoughts on on the second half. It's it's all emotion. It's all feels. It's all despair and the challenges that Lelouch faces. It's it's yeah. It's a a totally um, I don't know. It it hones in on um, the the key plot points of this entire show, which are you know Lelouch's overall plan, how he overcomes all of these challenges. Um, how everyone feels about him and about Zero and ultimately the sacrifices that he makes in order to save the world. And that that's intense and that's a lot to, to kind of go through. So I've said it before and I'll say it again. The show is like up here and you can't see my hand, but I'm like raising my hand in the air. It's up here all the time. And then this last half is like up here and then down here at the very bottom and then up here again because it's just a roller coaster of emotion and drama throughout these last i don't know what is it i don't have the the number in front of me last like 12 episodes 13 episodes Mm -hmm. something like that so yeah you definitely walk away from the show like feeling complete but empty at the same time is how i describe it what about you, Aaron? What are your what are your high level thoughts on this finale of Code Geass? And I guess even the first half since. Um, oh yeah, and the first you, you know what, all of R two because you haven't joined us for the first discussion. So what are your thoughts on all of R two? Um, yeah. So just like with the uh, the first half, I really really like this second half. Also, um, being a big Mecha fan, I I know this is like kind of a point that a lot of people criticize about part two, but I actually really like the different uh, types of mechs that show up um, and just seeing, uh, you know, from an action perspective, all of the different uh, types of mechs that, that um, kind of show up with different abilities. Uh, so that aspect of this season, I really like just being able to like, you know, every episode had like a new mech basically. And then um, it's from, like, an emotional standpoint. It had some of the most emotional uh, episodes in the entire series, I thought. Um, You know, especially with part two, like, really early on, the emotions just, they keep coming, and they don't stop coming. Um, And, like, even the ending, there are... (laughs) (laughs) 
Um, yeah, the uh, like the ending too is just like it's so wonderfully done. Um, it's frustrating at times because you kind of you know grow to really like these characters. You become attached to them and you want to see them it work out for them in the end. And you know, as we'll talk about the, it doesn't really work out for everyone in the end, and it's just like so frustrating wanting to to see these characters uh, flourish and then have you know kind of be you know caught in the middle of this this drama where they aren't really given the opportunity to flourish the way you want them to. But yeah, it's a, it's just a wonderful like roller coaster, um, emotional, you know, drama filled show. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Oh my God. The feels. I, I kind of, um, in the last couple episodes, I was kind of like taking peeks at Carl's face as he was watching just to see if he was <laughs> expressing any sort of, uh, any sort of emotion. Cause <laughs> I will say when, um, when Shirley died, <laughs> he was kind of like, Oh, <laughs> so I was like, will he have more emotion for the, the, the major finale of this, um, this amazing show? <laughs> I will admit, like, I think I was just starting to get more pissed as <laughs> as the second half rolled along. Um, because I think we had taken a bit of a week off um, to before we delved back into watching Code Geass. And so this technically episode 14 is where we started. And just getting used to that, like, lightning fast pace again was just exhausting. <laughs> so I think that's where a little bit of my frustration came in. But then also just watching um, Lelouch delve into this sort of this tragic character um, and seeing him become the thing that he he was fighting against um, originally was like that was that came out of shock. But then I think for the ending to have come out the way that it did to Aaron's point, like you don't really get a lot of resolution from some of the other characters, but to see the way Lelouch concluded his story on a, I guess, slightly positive note um, was nice. And it leaves uh, a lot of, a lot of like lingering thoughts afterwards. But um, yeah, I guess to kind of go off that one downside I did have with the second half and I guess with um, uh, R2 overall is there's this, there's like this whole convoluted lore behind the power of Gias and the Gias order and the sword of Akasha and the thought elevator. Like there's all of these things that the show tries to pepper in like exposition about, but you don't really get a minute to understand like the interplay of this lore with what's going on just because of how fast these episodes are. And I think I made this analogy in our previous podcast where the pacing of the show is kind of like if you had a heart attack and then the show gave you a cup of coffee and then <laughs> the second half is like if you still had that heart attack and the show gave you a cup of coffee and then it gave you an energy drink on top of that. Like that's... <laughs> and like a line of cocaine or something. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, that was one part of the of this second half that um, was kind of a letdown for me. But, again, it, it, I think it's it's a – Lightly minor detail compared to everything else that happens um, with part two. Yeah, I can I can uh, agree with that. Um, there, especially with like the lore of the Gias and everything, the more supernatural elements, I guess. Um, 
it it does go by so fast that I can see it getting really confusing or that you know you miss something. I mean, I've watched the show a couple of times and I still don't fully understand everything um, about like you know the history of Gios and how it all you know works or what the thought elevator is and all of that. Um, so yeah, I, I definitely can see that. Well, I had planned to tap into your expertise, Aaron, <laughs> about all of the, the Gias order stuff. So I'll, I'll ask my questions when we get to those points, but don't feel obligated to answer them now that I know I'll, that it's I'll still confusing for you. <laughs> Maybe we'll, we'll, if we can put three heads together, that'll help us solve, yeah. solve these <laughs> Big brain time. Easier. Yeah. Um, <laughs> last thing before we, we go into our discussion is it's just it mind it's mind blowing that all of this was orchestrated by a fucking high school student. Oh my god! But yeah, I guess you know that that's just anime for you. So good job, Lelouch. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, let's go ahead and just jump right into our synopsis and discussion for Code Geass Lelouch of the Rebellion R two Part Two. So to start off with a quick summary. Code Geass, Lelouch of the Rebellion R2 is a 2008 anime series produced by Sunrise, Mainichi Broadcasting System, and Project Geass, which takes place a year after the events of the first series. The series was directed by Goro Taniguchi, who also worked with Ichiro Okochi on the script. Each episode is presented as a turn, much like a turn in a chess match. And although this was discussed in our previous Code Geass R2 episode, we are starting with episode 13 again, as it technically serves as the beginning to the second half of the season. So to start off with turn 13, Assassin from the Past, Shirley has a nightmare, no, not the mecha nightmare, the dream kind of one, about Ledouche being Zero the hero, but learns to reconcile with her suppressed memories. On an outing with him and Suzaku Naderu, she tells the latter on the side to quit being a bitch and forgive Ledouche as she has. Orin Jeremina later arrives to ruin the festivities, and Ledouche activates some specially outfitted trains that disable him and any Sakurai-powered items, but later joins Zero the Hero's cause after revealing his loyalty to Ledouche's mother, Marianne. Before Shirley can return to Ledouche, she runs into Rolo and accidentally reveals that she knows about Nunley being Ledouche's true sibling, to which Rolo congratulates her with a bullet to the stomach. Upon discovering her body, Ledouce tries to use Gias to command her to live, damn it, but it's no use. After professing her love for him, Shirley, Shirley dies, and don't call me serious. <laughs> okay, so let's start off with the OP and the ED, because we did not talk about those in the last R2 podcast episode. Um, I'll, I'll start. I'll say that this OP has to be my second favorite of all the Code Geass OPs, and surprise, surprise, it's by Flo, who also did the amazing first OP. The Jibun Wo. Yeah, the Jibun Wo, as we so lovingly call it. Colors. (laughs) And the ending for me is just meh. That's all I have to say about it. Like, there's nothing special. The visuals, again, are are amazing because I love seeing the the clamp manga art, um, the, the characters in that clamp manga art style. It's always beautiful, always soft and elegant, and really cool to see those characters in those um, those scenes or those outfits or poses. So I like the visuals of the ending, but the song is forgettable for me, mostly because I forgot what it sounds like. <laughs> what did you think of the OP and ED, Aaron? Um, so I, I like both the OP and ED. Um, I, I like all of the themes for Code Geass. 
Um, but, and this is going to be a little controversial, the first theme of R2 is actually my favorite Code Geass theme of all of them. I actually like it a little bit more than Colors. Um, so this is just, it felt like a little bit step down for me compared to that first theme. Um, but I still like it. The visuals, I think, are really good and much better than the, like, weird, um, like, stock frame photos they did for the, uh, the second half of, of R1. Um, and then the ED, it reminded me a lot, I think it might have been the same artist who did the first outro for the first season. Um, and it had that, like, same kind of, like, regal vibe to it. Yeah, it was the Ollie Project, um, the same band that did uh, the first season of um, ED. Yeah, I, I like the visuals for that, too. I kind of like the, the like, painted look um, that it gives for the, the visuals at the ending. What about you, Carl? Yeah, so start for me, starting with the OP, um, just for reference out there, it is World End. Again, by Flo, who did Colors from the first season. Um, it It is a little more hopeful sounding than the first OP of this second season, which was uh, Orange Range. I think OT was the title. Um, oh, I, personally, I loved the... I would say my my second favorite OP for Code Geass is um, Orange Range's um, OP from the first half. This one I would probably rank third. Um and I guess in terms of visuals, it it just remind this looks like any other Code Geass opening. So if you were to line up all of the openings together without any sound, I couldn't tell you which one was um, which one was which. Although I guess for this one specifically, I thought it was interesting that they had a shot of all the different nightmares or mechas. Um, I don't know if I caught that with the first OP for R two. Um, but another thing that was interesting with this is I think the ending of this OP changes at, during key episodes um, with Lelouch's hand where it becomes nighttime uh, once, spoiler alert, Nunnally quote-unquote dies. <laughs> but then it goes back to day when Lelouch, spoiler alert, becomes emperor. Um, so that was a nice visual touch for this OP. Um, the ED I hated, (laughs) um, the title of that for anyone who's interested is my beautifully elegant flower of evil, which I think is the translation of the Japanese title again by Ali project. And it's not Ali, the band that just got wiped off the face of the earth, um, with the, the drummer controversy, the one that did Jujutsu Kaisen. Oh, I was like, what are you talking about? (laughs) (laughs) But no, this is a totally different band, but um yeah the ed here again nice visuals for like clamps designs of the characters but i just don't like the the audio it 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 just sounds very creepy (laughs) and (laughs) honestly if you were to put this together with the other ed that this band did for code yes they both sound the same to me (laughs) like i couldn't tell you which one was the first song or which one was this song yeah, they are pretty similar. That's fair. But with this episode, so Carl and I have already shared our thoughts on this episode in our previous R2 podcast episode. So I think we should just do a quick run through of like the key points that we have. And then Aaron, we'll, we'll definitely want to hear from, from you because this is a, a pivotal, I think, pivotal episode in, in the story. But on my end, um, I called out that it's cool that Jeremiah became an ally after 
um, you know, all the shit that he was put through with Lelouch. Um, I talked a little bit about how Rolo is a very morally conflicting character at this point for me. Um, because on one side I did have sympathy for him because of his backstory and him just wanting somebody to love him and someone to call his family. But then on the other side, he's a fucking weirdo at certain points and gets overly protective of his relationship with Lelouch and obviously makes some pretty poor decisions because of that. Um, but at the same time, he also does make some good decisions when he, you know, goes out of his way to protect Lelouch. Um, and the other thing that I, I had called out about this episode is that, Shirley, while her death is very sad, tends to get in the way um, and at the, like, the worst moments. Like in the first season, we see her kind of get in the way um, at that one battle where she's trying to find out who Zero really is and ends up shooting Violetta. Here again, she um, she gets in the way and she causes some some issues and dies. Um, so if she if she just would listen to Lelouch and hang back, she probably wouldn't have to have her memory wiped or get shot in the stomach. Yeah. The only thing I really ha- had to say about this episode was fuck Rolo. <laughs> <laughs> um, obviously like knowing now what his, what his journey becomes, um, I, I've lightened my stance on that, but here it was just obvious that he only killed um, Shirley because it kind of plays into his sick, twisted fantasy of you know wanting Lelouch for himself as a sibling. Um, I mean, I also get that he had to get rid of Shirley because she revealed that she knew the truth about um, Nunnally. But yeah, I think this was just another corrupting move by a person who has a Gios power. Um, but yeah. But what were your thoughts on, on this episode, Aaron? Uh, yeah, so I personally think this is, like, one of the saddest anime episodes of, like, any show. Um, just, you know, the the pain that's uh, in Lelouch's face when he is screaming at Shirley to, to live, trying to use Gios on her to prevent her from dying is just, like, heartbreaking. And, you know, the fact that they are, you know, it's kind of a the anime trope of the childhood friend and, you know, it, in a lot of anime, they kind of uh, make it so that where they, you know, they end up together in the end. And this just flips the trope on its head where the childhood friend is dead. And, um, you know, this whole show was about Lelouch kind of lying and deceiving and not really being honest and true with his emotions. And this was a moment where, he finally realizes his true emotions and it's too late um, where he, I think he realized that he actually does love Shirley and, you know, it, it's too late for him to do anything about it. Um, and he, he, you know, he wasted all that time kind of playing games and skirting around the issue. And, uh, you know, obviously even more than being sad about having to wipe her her memory and you know start that relationship over it's he doesn't have that opportunity anymore because she's gone um and it's just extra extra heartbreaking knowing that and it's also extra frustrating knowing that he did wipe her memory knowing that this was how it ultimately ended anyway it almost kind of made that um that part in the first season meaningless because now they Mm. they wasted all that time getting to know each other again only for her to die um 
But that even makes it even more sad because, as Shirley said, you know, she was reborn and fell in love with him again. And if she was to die and, you know, be reborn a third time, she would fall in love with him all over. So it's just a really sad, like, cycle of just shitty situations um, and Lelouch coming to terms with it too too late to really do anything about it. Yeah, it was really sad. And I think that you bring up a really good point that his first use of Gias on her ultimately was wasted. And I think he he wiped her memory for, for two key reasons. One, so that she wouldn't have to feel the pain of you know remembering that her, her father died and that Lelouch is the one who caused his death, but then also to ultimately protect her because the knowledge that she had was very, very dangerous, um, as we have seen many times in the show, just knowing something is enough to get yourself um, possibly killed or at least put you in danger. Um, so yeah, it is. It is kind of sad that, uh, yeah, that that was all for all for naught. Yeah, it's just weird because I think the the episode right before this, like uh, Shirley and Lelouch made up. Um, if you remember the the stupid Cupid Day stuff. Oh yeah. And then yeah, you, <laughs> all you, the ball sacks on everyone's yeah. heads. <laughs> and then yeah, and then you get to this one, and and like you don't get to see that relationship come to fruition because obviously she she dies in the end. But um, listening to to your discussion points, Aaron, it made me think again that um, this Shirley's death kind of highlights the corrupting nature of Gias, where again, Lelouch had used it the first time, or used Gias the first time on Shirley um, to wipe her memories. And like, we know the consequences of that and how he felt um, knowing that she didn't remember anything about him. And then once she gets her memories back and then she gets this fatality, he tries to use the power of Gias again to, to save her, but it ultimately doesn't do anything for him. So it kind of just, again, shows the volatility of that power. And I think as a side note, this this kind of signals, I think, one one part of Lelouch's journey that kind of leads to his tragic tragic downfall at the very end of the show. It's also the, uh, the first downfall i guess of his um harem falling apart (laughs) (laughs) yeah seriously (laughs) he's got bitches man (laughs) moving on to turn 14 gias hunt rollo admits that he is shirley's hash slinging slasher but instead of blaming his half-witted brother ladouche blames the power of gias itself and spearheads an assault on the gias orders hq R2-V2 pilots his Siegfried Mecha to try and stop the Black Knights, to which Ledouche and Cornholia declare, not on my watch. Following this, Ledouche is transported to a dimension known as the Sword of Akasha, and once again encounters Emperor Dad, while Suzaku Naruru investigates Shirley's mysterious death, believing it to be at the hands of Ledouche, and plans to drug up Colin to get some answers, because that's not illegal at all. I think, again, this was where we got back into watching um, R2 after taking a, a slight break. And I remember thinking this episode being annoying as fuck. <laughs> <laughs> and not not just because of the pacing, but I think it did a little too much with too little time. Um, almost like the perfect example of going zero to 100 before you can even blink. Because I felt like there are a lot of different arcs in this episode that were just crammed into one. Um, I think my biggest takeaway from this or my biggest conflict with this episode is up until this point i think the second season kind of is setting up v2 as this sort of secondary antagonist or mastermind 
of this this war alongside the emperor but then he just gets like unceremoniously gunned down by the end of this episode so it's it's almost like he's a he's a throwaway character and i just his his attempt at having a threatening voice against lelouch was kind of funny i think he says like the line like lelouch you accursed prince but it doesn't sound like there's no oomph to it. Like it's just like a kid trying to trying to threaten you when they're like two fo- two feet tall. It's because his balls haven't dropped. Yet. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> it's interesting that you say though that you felt like this episode was overwhelming. Um, if I'm summing that up correctly, because mm-hmm. I actually wrote that this was an intense and fast paced episode from like a good perspective. Like it it moved so quick. It progressed the plot very very quickly i mean before we even knew what they were all about lelouch is already like attacking the the gios order and all that so it was a bit confusing i'll admit but i i found this episode to be very exciting um and i think a lot of that is just because we can see what happens when you actually do piss lelouch off because he's been angry right he's been angsty this whole show but now he's like seriously angry and Mm -hmm. that you know that takes his actions to a whole nother a whole nother level and I know that like they ruled Shirley's death as a suicide and, and all of that. Um, but, you know, he knows the truth. He's salty as fuck. And it's it's clouding his judgment and making him more aggressive than usual. Um, so his his desire to rid the world of Gias is good. But I think the reasons behind it um, and the timing of all of it is is questionable. Um, and he also clarifies that only he should be allowed to, to have Gias. And that, that also makes his actions and everything slightly questionable mm-hmm. uh yeah for i think there's like two um big takeaways from this episode for me um in terms of i guess like the overall theming of the show uh one is um kind of like i have said in the past that lelouch doesn't handle failure very well and surely dying was like a huge failure and it, he doesn't know he doesn't handle that very well. And it's from this point on where all of his plans and his scheming and everything just starts to spiral out of control because he never really gets a handle on it. And it's just one one bad thing after another bad thing after another bad thing. And he never fully like recovers from that because he doesn't handle fa- failure very well. And it just continues to spiral and weigh on him to the point where everything he tries to build up just like falls apart from this point on. Um, and then the other thing is uh, with Colin um, kind of being interrogated by Suzaku and um, him threatening to use like the refrain on her and all that. Um, I thought that was just really interesting too, because of how much Colin hates refrain and her history with it, not only from like a manipulative, you know, Suzaku's trying to get information from her standpoint, but also just from the, you know, she's seen the damaging effects of Refrain in her family and has stopped Lelouch from using it on himself that I feel like there was just even more of like an emotional uh, rejection of that from her as well um, as Suzaku was trying to use that on her. Yeah, and to piggyback off of that, I I found this scene really interesting that it happens in this particular episode because, and Aaron, I think you've called this out before the last time you were on the podcast, 
there are some major parallels between Suzaku and Lelouch throughout the show. And here, just in this one episode, we see yet another example of that. Because to your point, Lelouch again is struggling with this failure. He is basically losing his mind over what happened with Shirley and doing things that are outside of his his norm. And Suzaku is also going through that moment. He, he is about to resort to drastic measures just to get more information out of Colin, even even though she's a longtime friend of his, they, they you know they went to school together. He's using a, a drug that he um, he knows is is terrible and, and does terrible things to people. And luckily, in the end, he stops himself and recognizes, you know, this is not how I go about doing things. But the fact that he even got to that point, that point of desperation and and, and frustration, um, at the same time, Lucia is also having these moments of desperation and frustration was really interesting to watch. Yeah, d- definitely. Um, you know this. The parallels between Suzaku and Lelouch just continue to uh, get greater and greater as the ending of this show uh, goes on, and I think that this was um, definitely, um, you know, one of those moments. Yeah, and just to kind of comment on your first point um, with Lelouch kind of having this this tunnel vision. Um, I know at one point in the episode he says like the Gias toyed with Shirley, and so Lelouch kind of wants to consolidate power by. Um, essentially erasing Gios from the world, but it's interesting because he, he continues to like cling to this power as this as the show progresses, um, which kind of again delves into his his tragic downfall because he's trying to reach this end through nefarious means. And I think there was one point in the episode where his Zero Squad was gunning down unarmed citizens of the Gios Order that were trying to escape. But Lelouch just tells him to like wipe them all out, and that makes the the knights, the, the black knights, kind of question the morality of their mission. Um, so again, for Lelouch to just have this tunnel vision, um, again, ultimately leads to the tra- his tragedy in the end. Um, last note about this episode I want to make is it was funny how I think Lelouch was on camera with V two at one point, and then the walls fall down to reveal that they were fake and that he was. Um, close to V2's location the whole time. Uh, it reminded me of, I think this was used in The Simpsons at one point, where like it was a sting at the Quickie Mart, um, and then the walls just ended up falling down. I don't know. It was just, it was just funny. I know you're looking at me, and I, I don't watch <laughs> The Simpsons. I'm sorry. <laughs> but I guess it was just one small piece of comic relief that was nice. You know, like that, that SWAT meme where they, they like dropped <laughs> in that guy's house. <laughs> yeah, that, as well. In turn 15, The Sea's World, Suzaku Naruto decides not to have a fall from grace like Two-Face in the Dark Knight and foregoes interrogating Kalen, and instead finds out that OSI Miami has been compromised. Valletta the ponytailed bitch meets with Ogi intending to kill him, but Ogi fights back with the power of love. Back in Six Flags Great Akasha, Lelouch tries to use a magic glass trick and gets Emperor Dad to use that gun to kill himself, but turns out the big baddie gained immortality after stealing it from R2-V2. But Shitsu appears and, coupled with a very convoluted f- philosophical conversation, protects Ledouche by taking him into her unconscious mind, where he witnesses her past memories as a servant before obtaining the power of Gias. Ledouche returns to Six Flags Great Akasha to re- rescue Shitsu and return to reality, but Shitsu pulls a Gilderoy Lockhart and forgets who the hell she is. Okay, I have two questions. For one for each of you, Carl, explain 
Six Flags Great Akasha. What is it? <laughs> Six Flags Great Akasha. <laughs> Wait, what is that? And I, I know what Six Flags is, but like, help me understand the connection. Oh, because I think this this dimension is called the Sword of Akasha. No, I know, but like, why is it Six Flags? Because like the the theme park. Yeah, like the theme park. But like, why? <laughs> I, I don't know. It's, Are there? Know, I don't. Were there roller coasters? Did I miss that? Well, I mean, I know yeah, there's like whole, that big spiral thing that goes into the sky. I mean, this whole area is a circus. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> um, but yeah. Okay. Well, then my other question is for you, Aaron. What the fuck is the thought elevator or the thought elevator, as I like to call it? <laughs> um. Yeah. So that's that's like. I'm trying to like it's very like vague in the show <laughs> kind of like how it's presented um to me and like kind of how I understand it is that it's like like a realm almost of like memories that are like linking together uh Gios users um and I mean we see Lelouch enter it and seeing C2's past and it kind of gives him a new perspective as to what Gias actually is and what the contracts are, I guess. Um, but yeah, to me, I think the thought elevator is just kind of like a connection or bridging of memories between all the different people that have had Gias at one point. Okay. Interesting. That makes sense. That's kind of what I, I was thinking it was. Um, but yeah, everything around the Gias power in the Gias order that they try to explain in this last half it, it is as you mentioned earlier it is very very confusing so I was I was curious to know what your take is on that so I'm, I'm glad I'm like kind of in the same realm um, of understanding as you and I find this whole part with the thought elevator or the thought elevator um, really really intriguing because I feel like it's one of the first times maybe I could be wrong that Lelouch has been forced to think about his actions from this perspective like as i think charles called out he's always trying to make excuses for his own lies but then always wanting truth from the other from other people and i think that he is realizing that he expects others to sacrifice but hasn't had to kind of stop and think about all the sacrifices that um that he's forced on others through his plans like again Shirley and, and Nunnally and the students and Suzaku. So he expects a lot of other people, but then never expects similar things from himself. And Charles is really pushing him to kind of stop and reflect on that. And then he kind of has this, I don't know, existential crisis in that moment. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I guess I'm still kind of understanding this, this, this episode. Um, so in C2's flashback, she was just originally a, a regular human being, right? Yes. And then she meets this nun who had the Gias power. Yes. And then all of her powers get transferred to to, to C2. And yes. now she's transferred some of her power to Lelouch. I think it's like, okay, I, Aaron, feel free to correct me if I'm wrong. I think it's like you make the contract with somebody else and activate a Gias power that seems to be relevant to that person. So in C2's case, her power is to make people love her because she's been so alone um, and so cast aside her whole childhood that she just wanted to be loved. Um, And then when they fulfill their contract, and I don't know what that means because I don't quite understand like how you even go about doing that. But when they fulfill their contract, they then become the Gias 
whatever the fuck it's called the person user you yeah well i mean they're technically a yes user but they're like a yes like i don't know master thing now they're a thing in the yes world where now they have to go and find somebody else to make a contract with um i probably articulated that very poorly <laughs> yeah that's kind of how i understand it too is that like the the contracts are um i guess like the, when the contract uh is fulfilled that's when the power is transferred over in in its entirety so like when there the c2 and the nuns contract was fulfilled the nun gave c2 the power or the curse or whatever where she is immortal now and she's been trying to find somebody that can you know she could give that power to and she finds um lelouch kind of like how v2 gives it to charles um and that's kind of how i interpreted it that that uh at the end of the day like that is the point of the contract so is the contract like there's a specific goal that this person needs to achieve in order to quote unquote fulfill the contract because i think that's very ambiguous to me it's like what is the contract or the agreement that c2 has made with lelouch now i call it an agreement but really he has no fucking idea either (laughs) um is it just like in in c2's case is it just for him to fall in love with her and like genuinely love her or like for v2 is that contract for charles to keep the promise of like wiping out god or whatever and and you know changing the world like is 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 it ever kind of i know it's not explicitly explained but is it ever kind of implied in the show like what these specific contracts are i thought in this episode it it explicitly says that C2's contract is that she wants to die and end her existence. Well, I think that's kind of all of it. Like, that's the fueling, that's the driving force between all of these Gias people, is that mm. they're so sick of of living that they just want it to end. But I don't think that's the, that's the contract, necessarily. I don't know. I could be wrong. I thought the contract was, like, separate from that. That was, like, their own personal desire is to die, which is why they've now found another person to give the Gias power to. Yeah, I I think that, like you said, it's not explicitly stated. And I, you know, rewatching this again, I'm still kind of wrestling with if that was C2's actual intention for the contract or if that was kind of her just saying that to throw Charles off the scent a little bit and give Lelouch a moment to kind of get a one-off on him. Um, because she, it, like, right after she says that and like Lelouch responds to her after he visits the thought elevator. She like pushes away from Charles and runs over to that console that was like keeping um, Lelouch's mech in place and all that. So I, I kind of am a little con- like, not necessarily confused, but I, again, I don't think it's like explicitly stated. So I, it could be that she wants to die or it could just be that she wants to be loved and Lelouch verbally saying that he will you know make her smile and try his best to make her feel loved that could be him fulfilling his end of that contract then Hmm, interesting yeah that that makes sense and i i think um i think that's one of the things with with kogias as to why i mean it's just i think it's that in general as to why the the power of gias and the gias order is just such a an anomaly for me and i just cannot wrap my head around it um it's that there's a lot of implications but there's not enough um explicitly stated to really allow the viewers to understand what's going on it's a lot of it's up for interpretation 
um, including like the ending itself is up for interpretation, which we'll get to. Um, but it's kind. It's, I'm sure it's hard to to explicitly state some of these things when you're cramming so much content into so little time. Because as Carl's mentioned a number of times, this show moves at a lightning pace, where even the transitions between scenes are like a split second, and then you're right into the next scene. Yeah, I feel like this whole lore with with the Gias power and specifically C2's backstory, it it would have been nice to get that in in one episode. But again, this this show just wants to take you right to the next scene as as quickly as it can. Where the, the thing I equate this to is like this is like the Game of Thrones is one hour episodes cut together to make a, a twenty minute cut, and just the how rapid those are. Or how rapid these episodes are, it it doesn't allow the Lord to kind of to flourish and expand for us to really understand, which is why the three of us are trying to pick at pick at what this means. <laughs> but again, it, it is what it is, I suppose. In turn sixteen, United Federation of Nations resolution number one, the Black Knights gather forty seven Ronin. Oops, I mean forty seven countries to create the United Nations. Oops. I mean the United Federation of Nations, and declare war against Britannia in order to liberate Area 11. Oops, I mean Japan. Oops, I mean Jap America. The Empire responds by dispatching its knights of the round and a bulk of its military to the area. Meanwhile, that bitch Nina's back, and taking inspiration from her banging tables, has outfitted the Lancelot with a Flea warhead to bang whatever it comes into contact with. Emperor Dad interrupts the UFN's proceedings to challenge Zero the Hero to a fight for the entire world. And I'm sure the world happily agrees to this, no questions asked. Ladouche reveals his identity to Suzaku Naruto and begs him to save Nunnally from this madness, to which the latter agrees on the condition that they meet privately. I noticed at the start of this episode, um, Lelouch is now narrating the recaps um, in the beginning because I think, you know, because C2 lost her memory. So that was a nice little touch. Um, And around that whole concept, I love that Lelouch didn't abandon C2 when um, when she forgot everything. I mean, if she lost her memories, he could potentially see her as useless. Um, but there's more to their relationship than that at this point. I think that that may tie back into our, our conversation just a moment ago about him fulfilling his contract, if that contract is about caring about her and loving her. Um, and I also found it interesting that when he yells at her in their room or whatever, when she, I don't know, was trying to like feed him or some shit, he yells at her and flings the plate out of her hand and she cuts her finger which he later puts a band-aid on and you have that quick moment where she's looking at the band-aid on her left hand which just so happens to be her left ring finger as if it's like signaling some sort of promise or proposal um which obviously i don't think that's what lucia was thinking at the time that he was trying to stop her from bleeding but i think it's just some nice imagery that all plays into their relationship at this point and she still got her pizza which was yeah. Cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think she saved him like the last piece of pizza and then he just slaps her uh, slaps it out of her hand. Yeah, we got to call out that we do have a continuation of of the Pizza Hut, you know, logo <laughs> in this the second half of the show. At least it's it made it it made its return. I think that's the biggest comeback of Code Geass is seeing Pizza Hut return in R2. Unbelievable. <laughs> The one thing that I took away from this episode is um, specifically when the Emperor, I think he hacks the Jumbotron during the the UFN meeting and he calls out Zero. Um, 
He says, whoever succeeds in this battle, again, this battle between Britannia and Area 11, shall control the world. And he asks Zero, will you win everything or lose everything? That is the essential nature of war. And I believe Schneitzel uh, alludes to this in a later episode. But I wanted to point out that here it seems that the Emperor kind of pictures this war between Britannia and Area 11 as a big game of chess, with chess being like this huge analogy throughout Code Geass. Um, and as much as like Lelouch participates in this game, I think humanity is far too complex and important to be controlled or condensed into such a simple analogy of war as a game. And I think this is further emphasized by the bloodstain, I think that was caused by C2 injuring herself. There's a bloodstain on the king chess piece that Lelouch looks at um, towards the end of this episode. Um, so this is something that I'll probably hearken back to um, once we get into the later episodes. Um, but was there anything from this that you took away, Aaron? Yeah, I was actually going to bring up the bloody chess piece too, just because that chess imagery is so prominent throughout. But there's another line also when... I think it's when they're like upgrading the Lancelot and they're putting the Flea on it. Um, there's a quote that is something like, uh, oh, you're putting a strategic weapon on a tactical weapon. And the, uh, the idea of strategy versus tactics always comes up in Code Geass. And I think that's such an interesting like idea in the way that they keep addressing it, especially um, like in, in the throes of battle. That you know, most people think that strategy and tactics are almost interchangeable terms, but in reality, they have some very you know specific uh, nuance to to the terms. And the idea of putting a strategic weapon on a tactical weapon was just very interesting to me, um, given that uh, I guess especially because they were trying to mount that on I can't remember if it was on they were mounting it on the Lancelot or they were mounting it on the Gurren. But, um, you know, Lelouch being very tactical-minded and Colin and Suzaku being... Or Lelouch being very strategically-minded and Suzaku and Colin being very tactically-minded, um, kind of meshing the two worlds of strategy and tactics together was just an interesting idea to me. Yeah, that's a great call-out. Um, and I'm, I'm going to also piggyback off, or I guess have a related point um, for that same scene. I think it's that same scene. Um, and it's about Nina, because she sucks, and I'm surprised I made it this far into our discussion without bringing her up yet. But this was one of the moments where, I mean, she was awful before this in the second half. I think there was like a moment um, after she found out that Shirley died where she made some comments and was just like a, a terrible human being. But this in particular was um, a really annoying part for me because, once again, she's just a terrible human being. And this time, while she's not outright awful, um, she's basically testing Suzaku and his, uh, you know, his uh, allegiance to Britannia and is trying to manipulate him through his relationship with Yuffie to try to get him to kill off his own people using the Flea, all because of her emotions that she cannot seem to get a hold of and this mm -hmm. grudge that she's holding. So I just thought that that was just such a, a nasty, terrible thing for, for her to do. And I think if she had just kept it at you know, use the Flea in this battle, I would have not have been as off-put about it. But the fact that she's using Yuffie as kind of this um, this item of manip manipulation against Suzaku, knowing how close they were and knowing their relationship, 
just like ugh, just made me want to punch her in the face <laughs> and the ironic thing is that her last name is einstein <laughs> is it really wait yeah. i never knew that what the i read hell? that in in one of the the wiki um pages <laughs> is it because she develops what seems to be like an atomic bomb that just implodes i don't know but i, I don't think it's a fitting name for her at all it should be nina that bitch <laughs> <laughs> fuck nina <laughs> <laughs> In turn 17, The Taste of Humiliation, Suzaku Nareru and Ledouche meet at Kururugi's Shrine to hash it out, where the latter wins the former over by agreeing to end the war against Britannia and reestablish peace. That agreement is short-lived, however, as Prime Minister Schnitzel ambushes and arrests Ledouche, making him believe that Suzaku has betrayed his old friend. However, anticipating that it would be a trap, Ledouche uses a Giast Guild Ford Tough to save him and mounts another Black Knight assault on the Tokyo settlement by shutting down its power via the G trains. I um, both love and hate this episode because anytime we get to explore Suzaku and Lucia's relationship this intimately, I, I love because Suzaku's my favorite character and their dynamic is um, just always so interesting to me. But I hate it because of the, the, uh, the outcome of this conversation. Like on one end, we see Lelouch telling Suzaku not quite the truth about things like making Yuffie do what she did um, because we all know that it's an accident. But in the end, I think like he wants to protect her name and place all the blame on himself. Um, similar to the incident with Shirley, you know, despite that being Rolo's fault, he still says, you know, that was my doing ultimately. And I think this is really the first time or this is like the first moment where we start to get these breadcrumbs of what Lelouch's ultimate plan is because they keep his true intentions pretty mysterious throughout this, um, throughout this show really. And, and throughout this latter half up until, probably like the second to last or last episode where everything's revealed um his his true intentions his um his overall plan to be the enemy so that everyone else can be united um so this was a, a really interesting conversation for me to kind of sit through and and squirm about because i'm like don't fight don't fight you guys are best friends please just find a way to to make it right but even as they start to have a slight turning point we get that moment where Lelouch misunderstands that Suzaku betrayed him, um, especially when he feels that Suzaku is the last person he can turn to. And then afterwards, we see him, Lelouch, force himself into this shell to protect himself from any more betrayal, while also telling himself to only be cold and callous so that he never makes the same, quote unquote, mistake of trusting someone again. So we saw this similar reaction when Shirley died. He kind of went overboard with his aggression and then again here he he does kind of something similar and just says this is it i'm i'm shutting off from the world um and i'm going to be not a different zero and lelouch but um a much more cold and calculated one yeah the conversation between suzaku and lelouch in this episode is probably one of the most frustrating parts of this entire series because it's another one of those moments where it's just like Lelouch, if you just tell the truth and put everything out on the table, you'll get a much better outcome. Kind of like this whole this whole show is like if you told people that who you were, there would be more understanding. And so I feel like if he had just said like, yes, I was responsible for Euphemia, it was an accident. Like if he had just just told Suzaku everything, they could have worked together to 
come up with a better solution than just him lying again and then them deciding, hey, you know what, the best course of action would be for you to just keep lying and make everything even worse, but kind of like taking responsibility. Like it was, it was just one of those moments where it's like, damn, like if you had just told the truth, this would have been avoided this whole time. Yeah, absolutely. Especially after in one of the previous episodes, Charles calls him out on that. I think that was the thought elevator episode where he says like, you constantly lie to people, but expect the truth from others. You think that Lush would, would take that, you know, bit of wisdom from his father and maybe apply it in the situation. But nope, he's he's committed to being the uh, the common enemy. But he was opening up to Suzaku during that conversation, right? To a certain degree, but I mean, right off the bat, he, I mean, the first question out of Suzaku's mouth was, you know, did you do this to Yuffie? Is it, is it your fault that her end was, was as tragic as it was? And he's like, yep, it was me. (laughs) All Mm -hmm. my fault, (laughs) which he's not wrong. He just portrayed it as intentional when it was truly an accident. Mm. Yeah. But a big part of that too, is that Lelouch, or Suzaku knows Lelouch is lying throughout this whole conversation too. Because he kind of calls him out on it, and he's, he's really thinking about it, and he's like, well, no, Lelouch is saying one thing, but his actions were actually telling another. Like, he was saying – every question that Suzaku was asking was kind of a loaded question. Um, like, when he was asking, like, oh, well, why did you save the, the classmates when they were being held hostage by the Japanese Liberation Front? And, you know, Lelouch was like, oh, I thought it would be a good entrance for the Black Knights and – uh that kind of thing. And every question was, was loaded. Like, well, you did a good thing here, but why did you do that? And he was like, Oh, because I, you know, had this in mind. Um, and I think Suzaku picked up on that. where like, no, you were doing this because you actually care about us and you care about people. And, um, you know, even though I, again, they, they don't fully agree here and they still have the conflict going forward. I think this was where Suzaku at least started kind of opening his eyes to, Lelouch and what he was doing and as frustrating as it is that that was the solution they picked on and it could have been avoided had Lelouch just been open from the start it truly I think was like the best solution that they they could have had given the situation which I know is kind of kind of weird based on what I just said but um yeah I think it like that that moment is uh, it's just extra frustrating because Suzaku knows he's lying throughout this whole thing too and is like starting to realize it but even he isn't openly saying like no i know that you were actually doing this with good intention yeah that's a really good point i didn't even think about that like you're absolutely right that suzaku is like trying to indirectly give lelouch an out a way to escape this um this facade that he he has and and lucius never takes it and he gives him multiple chances like dude just just tell me that you're a good person i know you're a good person let me help you and he just, yeah, I think at that point, Lelouch had just come to terms with the fact that, um, at least in his mind, the only way to fix everything that he had broken up until that point, um, it was to have the ultimate outcome that we see in, in the final episode. Mm-hmm. In turn 18, Final Battle Tokyo 2, that sounds like an um, anime movie, <laughs> during the assault on the settlement, Rolo tries to locate and kill Nunnally so he can have LaDouche all for himself, while Sayoko rescues Kalan and suits her up in her not Gurren Lagan. As Kalan prepares to annihilate Suzaku Naru in his Lancelot, his Gios command to live damn you takes effect, prompting him to fire the Fleia warhead, which wipes out a good chunk of the settlement. 
Rolo calls his big bro to tell him that Nunley was KIA, and LaDouche goes insane in the membrane. The only comment I have about this episode um, is really the, the focal point of the episode, where Lelouch's good-intentioned use of Gias on Suzaku to command him to live has backfired. Something as pure and as um, as kind as wanting your closest friend to continue to live um, backfires on him. Like, that has got to be so incredibly frustrating, both for him and for Suzaku, who did something he would never do because the Gias power you know, took control of his actions. But at the end of the day, I don't blame either of them. I blame that bitch Nina for making the flaya yeah. in the first place <laughs> and, insist- and insisting Suzaku take it with him to the battlefield. Had none of those things been the case, he- Suzaku may have found a way to-, to live that didn't involve using a fucking imploding bomb. So once again, screw Nina. <laughs> it's all started with that table. <laughs> <laughs> and I was actually going to point out like the that was the highlight of this is obviously the, the-, the climactic scene with the flaya wiping out um, most of the settlement. And it's just funny how convenient that Ashford Academy sits right outside the zone oh my God, where that, that the warhead explodes. That school <laughs> is like in the middle of everything. Like just pick that school up and put it somewhere else. Mm-hmm. But I just love that scene because to your point, it's it shows that it's a consequence of the Gias power and it's as impactful as when Lelouch accidentally used it on uh Euphemia um, in the first season to trigger her GTA rampage. Um, GTA rampage. Yeah, basically. <laughs> but yeah, it's just crazy because, you know, this could have all been avoided if Lelouch didn't use that command for Suzaku to, to find a way to live back in season one. But it's just another example of how, even though he had good intentions, this this power of Gias has just, again, corrupted the nature of the world and, I guess, the nature of like Suzaku's free will. Yeah, and uh, definitely this is another episode of um, Fuck Rolo. <laughs> like, every time he kind of starts to have a semi-redemption arc, he does something that just, like, pisses me off. Where it's like, okay, I'm starting to feel some sympathy for him. And then he does something, like, tells Lelouch that not only is dead, even though, you know, he doesn't know that. And also that was his, you know, intention when he knows that she's like everything to Lelouch, it's just like, ah, I have a hard time like sympathizing with that. <laughs> yeah. I agree. He, he's such a conflicting character. I was just going to bring up the fight between, um, between Colin and Suzaku. Um, cause I, I think that fight's really cool. And like that, that upgraded Gurren is just so badass. And, um, I love, you know, both of those, the Lancelot and the Gurren are like two of the coolest mechs ever. So seeing them just like, I mean, it, throughout the whole series, they have continuous, you know, duels with each other. But this this duel in particular was just so cool to me when they're like in the air and, you know, the Gurren's just finally able to like just destroy the Lancelot for the first time. Yeah, especially like it seems like these these two nightmares or mechas just are constantly upgraded. So it's just like who has the bigger dick <laughs> in, in each case, um, and then they have like a very climactic duel at the at the very end. So I didn't even realize like yeah they're they're always fighting against each other. Yeah, they really are. <laughs> and speaking of Rolo, we uh, go to turn nineteen betrayal. 
where a momentary ceasefire is declared as Schnitzel agrees to meet with the Black Knight Brass, but Zero the Hero is still too traumatized to be of sound attendance. Schnitzel kindly uses the opportunity to reveal the truth about Ladouche and scares the knights into believing they have all been geost. Oji agrees to hand over Ladouche on the condition that Britannia liberates Japan. At the moment of Ladouche's betrayal, he is rescued by Rolo, the half-witted, but the latter's excessive use of his gias overwhelms his poor old heart as he flies Ladouche to safety. Ladouche, suddenly giving two shits about Rolo, resolves to honor his death by putting an end to Emperor Dad once and for all. This episode was like, you know, shit's always hitting the fan throughout the show, but now it's like fiery poop explosions everywhere. For me, this is when <laughs> things just like took a whole nother level or I guess reached a whole nother level. Um, and they, you know, we talked earlier about how um, the intensity of this show gets amplified in this last quarter of the show. And I think this is the, the episode where that starts to happen. Um, the battle was awesome, but some of the key things that I took away from this was First of all, Nina, it's the first time she realizes how awful she is when she sees the destructive power of her own creation. And I'm like, took you long enough, bitch. Hmm. And then, of course, Zero's true identity is revealed. um, And Luce decides to take full blame for everything by making himself appear as the bad guy. And as we know as a viewer, it's it's in order to protect everyone else. Um, But yeah, the, the key focus here is Rolo, who has his redemption by death. And Lelouch realizing his actions and decisions have caused him to lose a lot already. Um, He decides to be kind to Rolo in his final moments when Rolo is the only one that came to save him. Because, I mean, at this point, Lelouch has lost Shirley. He believes he's lost Nunnally. He believes Suzaku has betrayed him. C2 has lost her memory. So he feels so alone at this point. Um, And after even after dumping the truth all over Rolo that he just wanted to kill him off... Rolo is the only one that comes to save him and even sacrifices his life for him. So I understand, while it might be kind of jarring, I understand why Lelouch has an about face um, in this final moment with Rolo. And I think it's important, too, that we have these occasional moments to remind us that Lelouch is still a human being with feelings and that, you know, even though he can be super cold um, in a lot of what he does, he has good intentions and cares about people because... To your point earlier, Carl, we haven't seen any comedic relief moments. We haven't really seen anything with the the school or the students, those things that remind us that he he has sympathy for others and cares about others. Mm. And to kind of comment on, I called it Rolo's last stand, more so from Rolo's point of view. Um, I know that like there's an internal monologue that reveals that Rolo's just been used by the Gias Order um, as a pawn to use another chess pun. But I think like the reason that he always clings to Lelouch is because he savors the time that he spent with Lelouch as it allowed him to just become like a regular human being. And so when he says, um, as he's saving Lelouch and having his mini heart attacks or whatever, um, <laughs> I'm not a tool. I do this of my own free will. It's interesting because here the power of Gias is being used by Rolo, but in a way that as much as I hate this word, subverts its intention (laughs) um but because as much as like you and i all of us want to despise rollo it's like this last heroic act that that spurs lelouch to continue onward with his purpose as he notes like how much destruction the emperor has caused with his abuse of his authoritative 
and of his his Gios power. Yeah, um, definitely. There are uh, a couple things from this episode that I want to bring up too. Um, one is about Rolo um, with his Gios, and that it like literally gives him heart attacks every time he uses it. That seems like a pretty extreme weakness for his Gios that no other Gios user has. Um, like obviously Lelouch loses control of it and eventually he can't stop using it, but there's a big difference between like stopping your heart and eventually killing yourself to, I just can't stop using it. And I feel like, uh, any of the other Gios users that we've seen, it's, it's never that extreme. Even like Mao from the first season who like can't stop, you know, who can't turn it off either um it's it's just such a different uh weakness compared to the other gias yeah it's a good point and it makes me wonder if some of the other you know quote-unquote failed experiments with gias had a similar um you know situation like the early people that they used gias on or experimented with gias on but i don't know that's all that's all lore that will will not be privy to, I guess. Maybe it's just symbolic that, you know, Rolo just has a big heart. Yeah, a big <laughs> bunch of heart a attacks. A big heart on. A big heart on. <laughs> the last thing I want to say about this is it's weird because, like, Lelouch has technically lost two siblings over the course of a day, right? Oh, yeah. Shit. Like, Sheesh. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Poor Lelouch. I mean, how many siblings has he lost throughout this whole actually yeah that's true i mean charles has been fucking around he's got a whole slew of children there's um you know speaking of his siblings schneisel is actually a really interesting character to me because he's kind of lelouch's arch nemesis when it comes to strategy he's always one step ahead and always kind of beating lelouch in these little skirmishes to the point where he is now basically taken everything from him by revealing his true identity. Um, But out of all of the like leaders and monarchs that we see in Britannia, Schneisel never really comes off as evil to me. Um, He always seems like he's kind of stuck in the situation of, Oh, you know, I'm a Britannian monarch. I have to act a certain way, but even like in the uh, the party that we see him on earlier in the season, and just the the little events that we see, he never really comes off as like like evil or you know uh, malevolent um, to me more so than some of the other siblings and especially like Charles uh, do. And he honestly seems almost like another um, person that's open to peace and open to kind of letting Japan eventually get their liberation in the same vein as Euphemia, even if he's not as, like, outwardly as bubbly about it. Um, but I just find him a really interesting character in that aspect. Yeah, and it's inter- interesting that you mentioned that, too, because I, I kind of feel the same way initially about Schneitzel, Schneitzel that he, um, you know, it's like power was, like, thrust upon him. He doesn't really seek it out. Like, he just has his responsibility, and so he's going to do the best that he can. But by the last couple of episodes, especially when he fucking guns down Cornelia, I'm like, I, I feel like he had kind of a, a change of heart because he wants so badly to to overcome everything that Lelouch is throwing at him. And then I felt like Cornelia was actually the opposite of him, that she, to me, 
felt very, um, you know, sus in her intentions. And the only person she was really kind to was Yuffie. But then as her story progresses, I start to sympathize with her more and more, especially after she's like semi-offed and then returns and then just wants to kind of like find the truth about her sister. She didn't even care about some of the bigger things that are going on. She just wants to avenge Yuffie at that point. Um, And then at the very end of the show, before she's offed, you kind of see that moment where Schneitzel has a very cold um, and uncaring way of resolving the problem, but it's Cornelia who actually stops him and says, that's not right. You can't kill all of these people just to progress your plan. So to me, those two siblings had kind of like opposite character development where one went from being nice to being a shithead and then the other went from being a bitch to being a little more, um, I don't know, kind-hearted, I guess. Yeah, I'll kind of talk a little bit more about my thoughts on Schneitzel in the the next um, episode. But the way I viewed him is he's kind of like the Emperor 2.0 where they, they share kind of similar sentiments about power and, and authority. Um, and I think there's an analogy where um, in a later episode, it refers to the Emperor as or Charles as the past, um, Schneitzel as the present and as Lelouch as the future. So in that sense, I think like Schneitzel is trying to like maintain the status quo. Um, but again, he, he has a very dark side to him that we'll see um, when he operates the Damocles and, and does all the shit with that. Um, but yeah, Schneitzel is, is one of those interesting characters. And I think he serves as a nice foil in this case to Lelouch. Yeah, definitely. In turn 20, Emperor dismissed Emperor Dad begins to devise a plan called the Thor-Ragnarok Connection, while Ladouche and Suzaku Naruto separately head to Kamine Island to face him. The latter makes a deal with Schnitzel to become the Knight of One as a gift for assassinating the Emperor, as he is no longer concerned about the means justifying the ends in this war. The Knight Anyan Cat is suddenly possessed by Ladouche's mother, Marianne, who promptly restores Shitsu's memories as the pair also travel to Kamine for a vacation. On the island, Suzaku puts up a fight against the current Knight of One, Bismarck, while Ladouche strolls right into Six Flags' Great Akasha, sealing the dimension from the outside world so that he and Emperor Dad are forever trapped inside, preventing them from fucking up the world any longer. Um, fuck yeah, Suzaku telling Nina off indirectly when he drops that line <laughs> about, like, congrats, your invention killed so many people, and now Britannia is for sure gonna win, you bitch. I was like, yeah, Suzaku's getting savage at this point. He's as annoyed with Nina as we are. <laughs> Dumb bitch. <laughs> We're also, I think, reminded in this episode, um, yet again, that as different as Suzaku and Lelouch try to be from one another... They're actually very similar. It's another parallel, um, even down to their hands being dirtied and how intertwined they are with this whole war. Because as we know, and as we're reminded of, Suzaku, if Suzaku hadn't killed his father, Japan may never have been overtaken by Britannia in the first place. And I think a lot of what's kind of fueling his actions um, throughout this, this whole show is that guilt that he's carrying about what had happened. Um, so I just, yeah, anytime that we get those parallels, I get really, really, really excited. But I think overall this episode was, um, this episode was, I think, fun to watch just because I was like, what the fuck's going to happen? There's, there's too many things happening at once. And I was just confused by all the things, all the hints they were trying to drop on us. 
especially when it came to to Marianne and Anya. I remember watching this for the first time and I was just super confused by it all. And then watching this episode again, um, I was equally confused. Because as, as I mentioned before in some of our Code Geass episodes, while I've seen Code Geass um, early on, I actually don't remember probably like 50 to 60% of what happened in R2. So um, yeah, this uh, this was a good episode for me to rewatch, but still equally confusing. Yeah, when I first watched it, it was like, how the fuck is Anya connected to Marianne? I know. I was like, I it's don't like... <laughs> get it. She's so young, and Marianne has been dead for like eight years. Like, mm-hmm. how did this all happen? I mean, I know there's a later flashback that shows that uh, Anya was witness to Marianne's death, and so Marianne um, transferred her GS powers to, to her, right? Yeah. But watching this for the first time and not knowing that, it's like, that just came out of left field. <laughs> <laughs> and I guess this whole episode... To, to me, it felt like we were reaching the climax of the series, even though this was only episode 20 out of 25. So I was thinking, like, how how is this show just going to go from here? But obviously, like, it, it just continues setting the bar higher and higher with each episode. But with episode 20 in particular, to kind of harken back to the point I made about uh, Schneitzel, um, I think he Schneitzel directly says here um, in a conversation. I forget who he's talking to, but he talks about Charles treating war and politics as a game, and thinks that Charles has no right to be a king because of this very reason. And so the question becomes like, who would be the re- better um, successing or successor in this case? Would it be Schneitzel or Lelouch? And I think. What contrasts both of them, or what is contrasting between both of them, is that you know Schneitzel is all about winning the game, and we see that with you know his his matches. I think he had a chess match with Lelouch, and he mentions that Lelouch mentions that Schneitzel has always won matches against him. Um, but whereas Schneitzel is all about winning the game, Lelouch simply wants to end the game, and that game being like this. I guess you could technically call it the Game of Thrones, where the world is just stuck in this this cycle of endless um, violence and control. And I think one giveaway to Schneitzel being like the wrong choice to be the, the the incoming ruler is that he says the true nature of people is that they want to be ruled, and that's a part that Schneitzel is willing to play. But I think that also just confirms that he compared to Lelouch, is not fit for the quote-unquote new world order. Yeah, that um, the parallel with Lelouch and, you know, who deserves to be emperor is really interesting because um, Schneisel wants to be ruler because he, not only because he wants to win the game, but because he sees himself fit to be, like, ruler of the world. He just thinks of himself as being able to be that king in that moment. Whereas Lelouch while he might have the uh, ability to lead and rule the world in that way, he doesn't want that as his goal. Like his end goal is to liberate the world. Um, And I think that's a very important distinction, you know, between the two characters and the way that they, uh, you know, kind of view, um, you know, the, the emperor position in that way too. Exactly. Sorry, just as like a, an aside, just because Courtney was saying like, oh, you know, we've seen it and kind of forgot. I, and we haven't even brought this character up yet, but I completely forgot about Bradley 
like being a character in this show. Oh yeah, me too. When he first showed up, I was like, "Who the hell is that?" <laughs> I completely <laughs> forgot that he was in this show. Yeah, I think he he's an example of um, the fact that there's a lot of characters in Code Geass. It's really hard to keep them straight because mm-hmm. when he appeared on screen, I was like, "The fuck is that guy?" <laughs> in turn twenty one, the Ragnarok connection. Within Six Flags Great Akasha, the turns are tabled as LaDouche learns the truth from Marianne and Emperor Dad about her death in a literal Game of Thrones. The pair reveal that the Thor-Ragnarok connection will merge everyone into the collective unconscious in order to create a world without lies. However, LaDouche says fuck that noise and activates a Gia's power in his right eye to tell his parents to piss off for eternity. One month later, LaDouche becomes the 99th Emperor of Britannia. Oof, we could have made a nice rounded 100 if you just waited a bit. With Suzaku Naruto as his side as a Knight of Zero. Oh man, it's full circle, guys. What a huge slap in the face to LaDouche to find out that his mother, who he was working so hard to avenge, was actually part of this larger plan. And that she basically sides with Charles in, you know, his quest to destroy God and make the world anew, whatever the fuck that means, because I still am very confused by it all. Um, But I will say Lelouch has, like, major big brain time to, like, figure out how to get him, Suzaku, and C2 out of that situation. I have no fucking idea what Lelouch was talking about when he activated his second Gios power and killed his mom and dad, because I was like, I'm already confused by the whole Gios thing. And then you're saying all these things like you figured it all out. And I'm like, damn, Lelouch, I know you're smart, but are you really that smart? <laughs> I don't know. Maybe it's just me. Because don't I'm, underestimate him. <laughs> I, I'm too ignorant to what's going on with the Gios. But this this had to be the most confusing episode, I think, of all the episodes in Code Gios, just for me personally. Yeah, like that whole, again, idea of if you had just told the truth or explained what was going on from the start... Like, if Charles was just explained to Lelouch, like, yeah, this is why your mother had to die, then none of this would have happened. Yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah, it's like you you're, you go hot, and then you go cold with Charles, and then you go hot, and then you go cold. It, it's like, you know, it mentions, like, Charles had to cover up anything, everything, and it kind of reminds me of that SpongeBob Patrick quote, like, you do care! <laughs> but then you end up learning that, you know, they're in, uh, Charles's and Marianne's intentions are are somewhat twisted um, because he, the Emperor states that like what he wants to do with um, with changing the world and this Ragnarok connection is what Euphemia and Nunnally would have wanted, which is a kinder world. But the catch is like it's a world that kind of strips humanity of that choice, and I think there was one kind of blink and you'll miss it moment that kind of validates that this is the wrong choice do you remember where it says like abandon all yo what abandon all hope ye who enter here yeah they flash that yeah that flashes on screen and i don't know if you know where that reference is from but it's a reference to dante's inferno um and this is actually the message that is inscripted on the gates of hell (laughs) so (laughs) that kind of tells you how this plan is not going to be the right move for humanity. <laughs> um, another point is that 
I think to add like that personal touch to how this is all just fucked up, like Lelouch asks his mother, he asks Marianne if she has ever seen Nunnally smile. And I think it's just pointing out like uh, Marianne and Charles are really bad parents. <laughs> like they never saw the reality of like seeing and caring for their children. And so I think what Lucia is trying to emphasize is like the better world for them would have been to, for Charles and Marianne to abandon their so-called noble cause and to just be the kindness that they wanted to see in the world, to, to actually be loving parents to, uh, to uh, Lelouch and Nunnally. But instead, they, they come up with this weird scheme to, to kill God, however that's supposed to work. Um, and then Lelouch thankfully stops them in the end. Yeah, that's a good point. Maybe the, the true root cause of all of this, the entire world at war, is bad parenting. <laughs> <laughs> In turn 22, Emperor Lelouch, Lelouch, sorry, Lelouch reforms Britannia by abolishing the aristocracy and liberating the colonized areas. After putting down a mutiny by the Knights of the Round, thanks to Suzaku Naruto, Emperor Ladouche declares his intent to, enjo to join the UFN, who are wary of the power Britannia would hold as a member. Ladouche quells their fears by having Suzaku Naruto hold them hostage to force a vote. The poorly planned political process is promptly paused when it is revealed that Schnitzel launched a Flea warhead on the Britannian capital of Pendragon from his flying fortress, the Damocles, and... Who would have thunk Nunnally is at his side to support him? I was so sad to see um, Lelouch basically rejecting his past and all of his friends. Like, for example, when he um, ignored, is it Revals? Revals? Revals. Revals. Um, and showing no emotion or attachment to Colin. To be fair, I don't think he has romantic feelings for Colin. So, like, she needs to just chill. Um, but it was really sad to see regardless. And, I mean, we all know he's secretly doing this to protect them and also to continue this path of making himself the villain to then free everyone else of any wrongdoing or blame. It's kind of that whole concept of unite the world through a common enemy. Um, so he is, at this point, fully committed to that, especially knowing what his ultimate fate will be. And then we get the the whole reveal that Nunnally is alive although I think in either maybe earlier in this episode or the previous episode there was a, a hint that was dropped because some some guy and I don't know who the hell it was I'm trying to remember but someone ran up to Lucian was like oh shit we were trying to look for you when we found Nunnally now they didn't explicitly say they found her alive or dead but they did say we found Nunnally so that that's a very quick moment that goes over your head that I think will hint at the fact that she's still alive, but um, it's another blink and you'll miss it moment. Cause I think you were confused by that. I think I called that out and you were like, wait, what? But like, how would they have saved her? Right. The, 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 the area was blasted to kingdom come. Um, plot armor. <laughs> <laughs> See, it's, like, it's one thing with the show is like certain characters, like they, they just, they are still miraculously alive, except for Shirley for some reason. Like, she, we know for sure that she's dead. But I think, like, Nunley comes back. We see, like, Cornelia comes back after being shot by Schneitzel at one point. Guilford comes back. It's like, why? I know. I agree. I think it is kind of silly um, that 
it's overlooked as to how many people like miraculously inexplicably inexplicably survive but at the end of the day i'm glad that they do that because we we get more characters that have happy endings and after this fucking roller coaster of emotions and and all that i i would like to see more characters have happy endings in the final episode Mm -hmm. (laughs) so I, i can overlook it i can forgive it just because of what it ultimately leads to yeah, I can't remember if it was this episode or if it was one like the next one, but there was like the the news report saying about how uh, Lelouch had become the the new emperor, and it was like, oh yeah, Lelouch is the ninety ninth emperor of Britannia, and he's also the leader of the Black Knights, and he's also the leader <laughs> of the UFN. And I just thought that was like really funny because it was like, oh yeah, he he literally owns and rules everything. And mm-hmm. he's only in high school. <laughs> yeah, like, what the f- you know what I was doing in high school? <laughs> Not <I> was, that. <laughs> starting for my ACT. Uh, the only other thing I want to say about this episode is to make a quick Star Wars reference. Oh boy, Lelouch has now become the very thing he sought to destroy. <laughs> But, but this is intentional, though. This yeah. is inten- let's be fair. This is intentional. Yeah, because later on we'll see. Like it was all for for good cause. There's a, um, I think Courtney briefly like brought it up about the um, Lelouch rejecting Colin um, during this episode, and that was so frustrating to me because like I really like Colin. She's probably my favorite character in the show, and like just. Like, that whole part was, like, the whole show, you're just, like, you want, or the, I, I think I said during the first part, like, I wanted Lelouch to reveal that he was Zero, like, the whole time. And then she finally finds out, and she still sticks with him. And then to have this moment where, like, Lelouch just outright rejects her was just, like, oh, come on, man. <laughs> yeah. And, again, it was, like, his his harem was falling apart. I mean, that's the one that she did get in that 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 kiss at the end. And so. she had some uh some some moments with him. I don't know, where she like fell on top of him and then the shower thing. So, you know, she she had she had chances, I guess. <laughs> she had her chances. <laughs> in turn 23, Schneitzel's guys Schnitzel reveals that the Damocles will strike every warmongering nation in the world, thus enforcing peace through rated M for mature violence. Ledouche disowns Nunley in his Zero the Hero persona, but is conflicted in his opposition. However, his only best buddies in the world now, Suzaku Naruto and Shitsu, can encourage him to focus on his plan at hand, codenamed the Zero Requiem. Backed by the Black Knights and the remnants of the Knights of the Round, Schnitzel wages an airborne chess match against his younger Emperor brother's army and teases Ledouche with a Flea missile launch. But based on Ledouche's track record, I'm sure he has another what-the-fuck twist that will save his skin. And I wrote a note here like, I was getting so sick of these twists and turns. (laughs) I mean, I, I think that's just synonymous now with Code Geass. But like with this cliffhanger ending where I think like, Lelouch is reflecting on, oh, I have something else up my sleeve. It's like, you expect Lelouch now to just have some wild card up his sleeve. Um, and so the show has just become like more of a spectacle than anything else. But again, I, with with the way that the, the show ended, it kind of eased my tensions a little bit. So um, one thing I wanted to point out is the interesting use of the name of the Flying Fortress, which is Damocles. 
Um, fun fact is Damocles is a character who actually appears in like this ancient anecdote commonly referred to as the Sword of Damocles, which is an allusion to the imminent and ever-present peril faced by those in positions of power. Um, basically, like Damocles was this servant who wanted to see what being king was like, but he, as he sat on the throne, I think above him he could see like a sword dangling by a thread, which is like a, a metaphor for you know people will always like vie for your power uh, through violent means. And so, the fact that they use that name to juxtapose with like the Damocles floating above the world trying to consolidate order was like a very interesting choice on the writer's part. So yeah, that's what we call good writing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> And to what you said in the synopsis, um, that he only has two best friends left, Suzaku and C2, you can't forget about his ultimate simp, Jeremiah. I mean, this guy, I mean, sure, he wasn't a simp for long, and the original simp was um, Deodhard, Deodhard, but now it's been replaced with Jeremiah. I mean, I think he's probably... He, you can probably call him one of Lucia's best friends at this point. Because as we see in the last episode, he's one of the few that's privy to Lucia's ultimate plan. Because, you know, he pretends to let Zero get past him. But in this episode in particular, we get a, a nice glimpse into Lelouch behind the mask. When C2 goes into the bedroom to console him. He talks about his true intentions and the real plan that he's cooking up and... That kind of explains why Suzaku is so willing to fight beside him. So again, this is another. This is a larger breadcrumb that we get um, to his ultimate plan, and this is when the show really starts to open up to the viewers about what the hell is actually going on. Um, I do also want to note that stupid Nina gets her karma in this episode. She was so fueled by hate for Zero for so long that a lot of the choices that she made were irrational and fueled by emotion. And now she has to work for him in order to fix her mistakes. Um, granted, she's living a cushy life and all that, but just the principle of it all, it's nice to see that karma got to her. And I think that, I think this um, episode's kind of interesting that it, it does kind of show um, a lot of these side characters have their moments like post um, the ascension of Volush. Um, like with Nina uh, being forced to work with him, but also, um, you know, Valletta and Ogi have their moment where she reveals that she's pregnant. Um, and then, of course, like everything, all, all the characters like Cecil Lloyd, like they, it kind of goes and shows what all these other side characters are up to um, during this whole time uh, where they might have been kind of neglected, I guess, with the main focus of the story being on you know, Charles and Marianne and Lush for the last couple episodes that it was kind of, uh, kind of cool to see like what they were all up to again. Yeah. And it goes back to like finally getting some happy moments, um, for some of these characters and, you know, with how heavy these last few episodes are, I, I really appreciated it as well that they, they gave us, they took the time in their fast paced world to just show us like, Hey, things are going to work out at least for, for some of these folks. Mm-hmm. But to to highlight the negative part of the the side characters, I think the one of the absolute worst parts of this season is that it just makes Nina important again. I know. Oh <laughs> and my it's god! Just funny. Like <laughs> as we'll see in the next episode, everything relies on Nina's calculations. Yeah. Right? <laughs> Although so, to be fair, they wouldn't even need to worry about any of that had she not created the flea in the first place, or had a way for the the limiter to be removed on it. Mm-hmm. 
And she's a high school stu- student too, and she created the Flea before like Lloyd or any of those like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like, other scientists. What the fuck? It's like, what is her IQ? <laughs> this is like a big. This is like a big brain school. I think that's all mm. it is. I mean, not everyone's smart because you've got revolves and all that, but it seems like overall it's a big brain school. Yeah. In turn twenty-four, the grip of Damocles. Using Nina's new Flea Eliminator, Ledouche and Suzaku Nadaru successfully deplete enough of Damocles' Flea warheads and, very conveniently, I might add, disable one of the warheads head-on in a very tight time frame before bypassing the fortress barrier. Schnitzel tries to trap Ledouche inside Damocles by turning the fortress itself into a Flea missile and tries to dip the fuck out of there. But Ledouche uses a reverse Uno card to trap Schnitzel into submission under Gaia's power. Ledouche subsequently confronts Nunnally, whom, after dropping the Flea switch she was entrusted with, is finally able to see. And there are just, I just have two big questions with this episode. I don't know if this is a question, but don't you think it's very interesting, like when that missile approaches, I think, uh, Ledouche or whomever, like, Lelouch says, like, oh, there's a calculation that must be done within this very specific time frame, like 0.04 seconds, and they just manage to do it. <laughs> like, I think, yeah, okay, so I know that's super over the top, but I think the the whole point of this is to show the potential that Lelouch and Suzaku have if they fucking cooperate, which they don't ever cooperate throughout most of the show, but when they do, they, they put together some amazing things. This is, but this is kind of like remember that episode with was it Mao where like Suzaku had to do like this very elaborate. Oh, the episode I hate. Where yeah, is it <laughs> this, this is it? basically that. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> again, I I agree. Yes, it's very mm-hmm. over the top. It's very convenient. It's just a big big fucking plot device. Yeah. But the key takeaway is that these two could easily conquer the world. They could have easily. I think achieved their ultimate goal of liberating everyone from the grip of Britannia had they just fucking, I don't know, communicated. Yeah, communicated and worked together despite their um, different approaches to getting from point A to point B. Okay, yeah, well, that that makes sense. But yes, it is over the top. I will agree <laughs> with you there. <laughs> and then my second question for both of you is like, um, so Nunnally falls to the floor and tries to find the the switch for the Flea, and like she just suddenly opens her eyes like what caused that to happen though if if any either of you can explain that moment i cannot explain it so aaron do you do you happen <laughs> to have an explanation or a thought on this one um honestly it makes no sense <laughs> it was just plot convenience I'll just, I'll just chalk it up to that i i don't know maybe it's like the sheer um the sheer willpower like she's so desperate to find the fucking death switch that she just i don't know breaks free of it she just <laughs> she just does it okay plot okay. armor <laughs> okay <laughs> yeah. for me um man I've, I've got a lot of notes here but I think the most important things that I, I noted here is that Nunnally questions how she's able to fire the Flayas back to back so easily. 
I think this is the moment she starts to realize the position that her brother and other leaders are in and the sacrifices and tough decisions needed to progress a plan or to try and, you know, do the right thing, even if it's through very questionable means um, and how quickly one can become desensitized to violence and to basically killing a bunch of people when you feel that what you're doing is for the greater good. Um, and it's kind of this this battle that we see throughout Kogias is like what is the right thing what is considered good um who who's who's really evil at the end of the day because a lot of times Lelouch can do things that make him appear on the surface at least um to be somewhat evil so I, I thought it was cool that Nunnally had that moment of reflection I also found the whole battle between Lelouch and Schneitzel um to be really entertaining not from like the the tactical perspective but more the strategic perspective because we see Lelouch and Schneitzel treat all of this um you know this whole this whole one-on-one battle as a game of chess as we've seen before Lelouch has always struggled to beat his older brother um in chess or really in anything that requires you know a strategic viewpoint so So, he plays Uno (laughs) (laughs) so we we see the two of them kind of you know, using their forces kind of dance around the battlefield, a.k.a. the board, um, using these pawns, um, you know, to try and psych out the other person, I guess, because they never it takes them a while to actually start attacking each other. They just kind of move their pieces on the board until the other one makes a mistake. So that, that was really cool that that representation of chess as, you know, a key element to to warfare, I guess, mm-hmm. is what they're trying to tell well, yeah, I think, and then as I mentioned before, like Lelouch wants to just end this 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 metaphorical chess game so badly that he ends up just tricking uh, Schneitzel instead and submits him to, um, or like causes him to submit to his own power using using Gias. So you know, that was like again his the wild card um, up his up his sleeve. And like how how stacked is uh, Lelouch's forces now after using uh, Gias on Schneisel too, because he has Suzaku, which we have already said that you know the two of them put together can do anything, and now he has Schneisel, the other like tactical genius of the world, on his side too. So he's got like everybody that could potentially. <laughs> oppose him at this point he he uh he's got to catch them all <laughs> it's, it's like now he has all of the chess pieces on his one side <laughs> so like he just automatically wins um what's it called and to go more on schneitzel i don't know we'll talk about the the final episode obviously after this one but what happens with schneitzel in the end oh like shit after, i don't know That's after lelouch is, is killed yeah, Why I, they never address that? I have no fucking idea. <laughs> Aaron, do you know what happens to Schneitzel? <laughs> well, I think, doesn't he technically say when he uses the Gias that he has to serve Zero, not serve Lelouch? I might be, I might be remembering that incorrect, but I think he says, like, to serve Zero. And so at that point, wouldn't he then serve under Suzaku and the, and the Black Knights? Oh, I didn't oh, notice that. That's a really okay. good point. Okay. Yeah, that's that's very as always. That's very clever on Lucia's part. He's always thinking ten steps ahead. Because I was going to say like he would be technically the next successor to the throne, but I think we we find out that it's Nunnally. But okay, 
that kind of makes sense then. I thought like that was just like a dangling thread that just doesn't get addressed by the end of the series. Um, last thing before the finale, I just want to point out this. I don't know if this is technically comic relief, but um, Millie has a conversation with Revolves back at the Academy and they comment on how all the student council members are like fighting now all over the world, <laughs> which again goes back to the point of like these are all high school students. Um, so hashtag anime, I guess. <laughs> and in the final turn, 25, re semicolon, <laughs> whatever that means. Uh, Suzaku, Naruru, and Kalin engage in a one-on-one mecha fight that disables both their nightmares as Ladouche regretfully uses his Gias on Nunley to get the car keys to Damocles, thereby becoming ruler of Zawardo. Two months later, as Emperor Ladouche prepares to oversee the execution of the UFN and Black Knight leaders opposing him, a Suzaku Naruru disguised as Zero approaches his parade float to end Ladouche's life, the final part of the Zero Requiem. Though he was the mastermind of breaking this grueling political cycle all along, the world unites in their hatred of Ladouche as Nunley takes over as the omnibenevolent Empress of Britannia to forge a new future. The series closes out as Shih Tzu, taking refuge in a hay wagon on the countryside, has a casual conversation with a Ladouche from the great beyond. I'll say it before and I'll say it again. Jibun, whoa. <laughs> Um, so really quick, as a side note, Rigby started howling the moment that Lelouch was stabbed and <laughs> fell down to Nunnally. So we were watching this pretty late at night. And then like, as he's like, literally as Lelouch is sliding down to Nunnally, Rigby just started howling. And I don't know if he was sleeping or not, but I was like, oh my God, he's so upset that Lelouch died. <laughs> and for anyone who doesn't know who Rigby is, he's one of the corgis of the he's Strictly our, series. He's a resident editor. Yeah. <laughs> so go check out our Instagram page if you want to see some pictures of our two corgis, Ayn and Rigby. But yes, he freaked us out because he started howling. And I was like, I feel you. I feel you. Lelouch has now died. Um, but yeah, I hate to see when good characters die. But I have to say that this end makes so much sense for Lelouch. Like, once he knew he had to become the villain to unite the world, he knew he had to die. And that's the whole thing that fueled his plan with Suzaku in the very end, as we finally see revealed in this episode. Yeah, it's it's crazy because, like, the, the solution to, to the problem um, that Lelouch sees in front of him is to take himself out of the solution. Um, and you know, I'm going to make two references to the dark knight here again this harkens back to harvey dent's quote you either die a hero or you live long enough to see yourself become the villain and that's exactly what happened uh with lelouch and i guess the second dark knight reference here is actually for the third movie the dark knight rises because you see here that lelouch has passed on the torch of becoming zero to suzaku in order for this symbol of fighting um, an oppressive establishment to to kind of live onward, um, but yeah, this was act- this was not the ending that I was expecting, but it does remind me, and I guess light spoilers here, but it's almost similar to the ending of Metal Gear Solid Three, where you know, like it's this character who's becomes like so complex in his in their personalities and motives that they become the sort of unsung hero at the end. Like you, you don't realize that they're, they're the ones who actually saved the world 
and there will never really be any acknowledgement of that. So it, it's it's very it's a very selfless thing for Lelouch to do, knowing that the only way that he can save the world is again by taking himself out of the world. Yeah, I uh, I love the ending for this, and um, I mean, there's a lot to unpack and a lot that goes on in just one episode. Um, as far as like references to other things, I get um. A lot of like Alan Moore vibes from this too. Uh, I know like the um, references to V for Vendetta are pretty like prevalent throughout this entire series, but I also mm-hmm. get some um, Watchmen vibes at the end here too, which I don't know if you've ever read or seen that. Um, but where Doctor Manhattan uh, realizes and that in order to unite the world during the Cold War, he has to become the thing that everyone is afraid of for that too in the same in the same way so i I definitely get like the alan moore uh vibes from this too um and then like i said there's just a lot to unpack there is so much that goes on in this episode from the fight between colin and suzaku and all of these characters like uh toto um and colin and, and suzaku just like spouting political jargon and like philosophical ideals to you know the the parade where um Lelouch eventually dies and then the brief like conclusion that shows everyone's life living uh, all the other characters living happy lives after the event there's just a lot that goes on in this episode i also find it you know really interesting that Lelouch uses Gias on Nanali because throughout the entire season he is being very cautious and tactful with how he um, approaches and deals with Nanali as she is kind of now uh, sided with the enemy, uh, quote-unquote the enemy, um, even as, as far as to saying that he doesn't want to lie to her over the phone when uh, she calls, or Suzaku calls her to, to talk to Lelouch. Um, and he's kind of freaking out in that moment. And yet here he is, uh, using Gias on her, the you know ultimate symbol of manipulation in this show, just really showcasing that Lelouch is uh, willing to do whatever he needs to do to see this plan through. And you know, even more interesting is that his uh, using Gias on her is only possible because she can see. Uh, if she had still remained blind, he would not have been able to use Gias on her, and his plan would not have succeeded then. Um, so it's a really interesting uh, outcome, considering you know not only that she can suddenly see, and so he's using Gias on her, but also because he has been so hesitant to lie, lie to, and manipulate her. Like she has always been the one person that he. Uh, tried to be truthful with that he tried to show his true self to and um in the end he ultimately turns to um manipulating her uh, with gias you know and the ultimate manipulation uh and that just makes the ending even that much more tragic when um not only re- uh, realizes what lelouch was up to and um you know that again that uh, that scream at the end is just so, you know, heartbreaking, um, and just just makes that whole that whole part even that much more sadder. 
Yeah, and I find it ironic um, that Lelouch's whole goal was to give Nunnally the kind world that she deserved. And in the end, we last see her upset, screaming and crying because her happiness stemmed just from being able to be with her brother, and now she has to be without him. So I, I'm super conflicted by that because, like, long term, she'll have a good future because, you know, Britannia... And all of this will kind of go away. But did he ultimately ruin her happiness in this quest to bring her eternal happiness? It's kind of like, depending on your take on that, you know, she could either be happy or she could be eternally sad knowing that, you know, her brother, her only family is now gone. Yeah, and that's, it's heartbreaking because, like, the, the juxtaposition of it, like, not only is it ironic that uh, Lelouch's entire... Um, drive throughout the entire series was to you know make not only happy and here she is is the most depressed and unhappy she has ever been but also the whole world is literally celebrating his death and cheering and and looking forward to this bright new future that they have in place and she is just screaming and crying her head off while the entire world is celebrating and it's like just a like a heartbreaking like juxtaposition during that yeah, yeah, and and I, I think, too, in this moment, I'm... Well, first of all, I'm really glad that Suzaku lived, because, again, he's my favorite character, and I'm really glad that he took the position of, um, you know, of Zero, Zero the hero, um, even if he has to hide behind a mask to do so. But I think even in this moment where Suzaku kind of has his... Um, I don't know if you'd call it his redemption or his shining moment, but that's also, I think, equally sad, um, kind of up against what Nunnally is going through moments after this. Because Suzaku is finally getting what he wants, which is to help save the world, but it's at like one of the biggest costs, which is his childhood friend, who has kind of gotten the world to this point. So one thing I wanted to quote is Lelouch's final words to Suzaku, because to me, they're super, super heartbreaking. He says, um, you're going to be a hero now as a messiah who saved the world from Emperor Lucifer Britannia, the enemy of the world, as zero. This then shall be your punishment. You will live on wearing that mask as the knight of justice. You will no longer live as Suzaku Kururugi. You shall sacrifice the pleasure of being an ordinary person to the world forevermore. And then Suzaku replies by saying, this gias, I accept it. And to me, this was probably one of the most human moments that Lush has in the entire show. He passes on the mantle of Zero to his childhood friend, but then also warns him um, about what he has to sacrifice in order to truly become Zero and protect the world, which is being able to be an, an ordinary person. Lush tried so hard to cling to his normal life with Nunnally and as a student with his friends, but in the end, it just wasn't possible to be both Lelouch and Zero at the same time so it's kind of like he he says that this is your punishment as well because this is not going to be you know as enjoyable as it may seem to be the hero there's a lot that you're going to have to deal with a lot that you're going to have to sacrifice you know in order to I guess kind of get your ultimate goal Suzaku of saving the world Mm -hmm. I also wish um, as a side note I also wish in this final episode there was more of an intimate moment between Lelouch and C2 because they have such an interesting relationship and all she ever wanted from him was love. And I think at this point you can kind of, you can kind of say that in, in certain ways he, he really did love her. Um, but we don't really get any closure on that. It's just kind of like this, this, you know, last chat with them in the previous episode. And then in this episode, she just kind of reflects on Lush as a person, but 
I don't think they have like a final moment, right? What about she? It sounds like she's directly talking to Lelouch in that final scene. Well, yes, but like he's dead. <laughs> so, Is he though? Okay, well, yeah, because that's another <laughs> thing that I wanted to bring up too. Before we get there, I was just hoping that while he was alive and before you know his his big demise, that they had some sort of moment, that they had some sort of moment between the two of them. You know, some sort of intimate moment, similar to the moment that we had. I think it was in the first season in the cave mm-hmm. where um, I think I talked about it, where they finally start to see eye to eye and you get that imagery of the two water droplets falling at the same time. The ripples are moving at the same time to signal that they are finally on the same page. They're finally on the same team. I kind of wanted something like that. It didn't have to be anything big, but just, you know, a nice moment between the two of them before he got stabbed in the gut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't think this anime wanted to reward us with that just because <laughs> Lelouch had gone off the deep end. Although technically he didn't go off the deep end. Yeah, that's true. Um, but Aaron, any any final thoughts or any thoughts about this finale from your end before we go into the big question about C2 talking to Lelouch at the very end? Because I think I want to bring that up as like a separate topic. Uh, yeah, so um, one thing I... I... I like, but also find kind of weird, um, is that when Lelouch slides down that that ramp, and then his uh, Nanali runs over to him, and she touches his hand, and she's all of a sudden able to see all of his memories, and realizes that what he was doing was for the betterment, and that he actually wasn't evil. I like that because she finally has the closure and is able to like understand Lelouch's plan and and forgive him for all that. But I also don't understand how she was able to do that. It's kind of like yeah, another it's a one good of those point. things how she just opened her eyes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She's amazing, I guess. She can just she, do it all. She used the force. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then I love, again, just over the, another like scene of over-the-top craziness that this show offers when... Suzaku is literally running past machine gun bullets from from nightmare (laughs) frames that are shooting from the side. Yeah. (laughs) And then he, uh, when Jeremiah comes out too, and he uh, tries to attack Suzaku and he launches over him and you see Jeremiah like smile at him and he says something like, like, I don't remember exactly what he said, but it was something like keep going zero or something. And it just shows like, yeah, Jeremiah had like a great redemption arc too. Hell yeah, talk about a crazy redemption arc. I mean, he went from, like, rags to riches in, like, one whole show. I mean, he, he to be fair, he had, like, a position of power and all of that, and then that all got stripped away from him by the guy that he ultimately ended up simping over. <laughs> but, but hold on, And then hold he on. started an orange farm. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say, he plants oranges with Anya, so he just becomes the butt of all jokes again. <laughs> he really is orangey. Un- unbelievable. Man, Jeremiah, don't fuck with that guy. <laughs> he is the breakout star of this entire and show. <laughs> also, I mean, how how OP is this motherfucker? I mean, everyone's out here using their Gias powers, and he's the only one that could be like, "Nope, you're not using yours, and nope, you're not using yours." Let me just undo that shit that you all that you all did. So did- I I think that he he's a very deserving character of that ability, and I think the right character to have that ability. Although he only used that once. 
right throughout the whole show twice i think the other time was um it was very quick but when anya was saying like i can't remember shit like remember her uh... her um nightmare like the top got exploded and somehow the two of them are able to breathe as they're like i mean thousands of feet in the air in this wide open like half <laughs> split in half um nightmare that aside she comments that she can't remember anything and then he opens his like orange eye and it's like oh shit let me help you with that so but you're right though we only really get like one major instance i think of um of his gas canceller okay I, i completely forgot about that moment that went over my head one last thing before we move on to your this is just a stupid question did anything ever happen with uh jinka's supposed illness from coughing up all that blood i don't think so aaron did you catch anything about that i don't think so either because he's just he's always there like, he doesn't <laughs> die or like address it ever again <laughs> so like what's the point of that like they they had him coughing like every other episode and it shows the blood on his hand but that never like that never comes to a resolution i mean hopefully he lives happily ever after in, in the chinese federation <laughs> but i just thought that was like why introduce like why put so much emphasis on jinka having this this debilitating illness and then not provide us with any resolution to that yeah i don't know he, i love his character i think he's awesome what makes me uncomfortable though um not about him specifically but that I don't know what the princess's name is, but that she has like romantic feelings for him and wants to marry him. Like that's cool and all, but I I get like brother vibes from Shinku. I think he maybe mm-hmm. sees her as like more of like a little sister or something. I would hope because I'm like, damn, that's weird. She's like like ten years old, and you're like I don't even know, probably like twenty five, thirty years old or something. Mm-hmm. That's that's a pretty big age gap. <laughs> Um, One more side note for me um, that I wanted to mention is around this idea of Gias not being a power and not being a curse, but actually being a wish. I thought that was a really cool take um, in that final conversation between Lush and Suzaku, because in the beginning it did start off as like this ultimate power. And then um, I think, um, what was it? There was one point in this latter half of R2 where it started to feel more like a curse. Oh, when C2 revealed um, her true intentions and, and her backstory as to why she made a contract with Lucian, what what the contract actually means, then it felt more like a curse. Mm-hmm. Um, but now it's more like a wish. And then, you, again, you get that moment where Suzaku says to, to Lush, like, this gias, this wish, I accept it. So I thought that was a really cool transition of, you know, the, the way that gias is viewed throughout this show. Um, it's nice that it ended on a, on a happy note. It's a wish. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so now the big question that I think everyone likes to uh, debate over at the end of this amazing ride is C2 talking to Lelouch when she's looking up in the sky and she looks like she, you know, I don't know, went back in time or something because now she looks like um, some old maiden. Country bumpkin. Yeah, country bumpkin (laughs) who's like sitting in a bale of hay on a wagon or some shit. I don't know what's going on there. But she talks to him and the question is, is Lelouch still alive? Um, has he pulled a Marianne and moved his conscious elsewhere? Um, or is he actually dead and she's just, you know, metaphorically, spiritually talking to him as one normally would? So, um, I don't know. Anyone want to want to start with their take on that? No, I was just going to say the exact same thing. The, the way that she's speaking in this final scene, it, it sounds like she's having a conversation with Lelouch and I was going to mention like it, it's similar to 
how like Marianne was able to use her KS power to to still survive somewhat. Um, although it was through Anya, so I don't know through what means. Um, through what means Lelouch would be surviving at this point. Uh, but yeah, all I know is that I'm. I think you mentioned this uh, prior to the recording, Aaron. That there there is a a follow up movie that kind of takes place after the events of R two. Um, but again, I don't, I don't know if that addresses what happens in this, in this final episode. Well, let's put that movie aside. Um, because let's just think about it in the context of like Code Geass, the original series, because yeah, I think, I think that movie may kind of like change the, the viewpoint, um, based on what actually happens in that movie. But um, I'd like to approach it from, again, just the viewpoint of Kogias and Kogias R2. But Aaron, what, what are your thoughts? What, what would your take be on that final moment between C2 and quote-unquote Lelouch? Um, so when I first saw it, I took it that he was, um, or that she was speaking to him directly, whether that was that he was still alive or that he transferred his conscious. Um, especially because there's that um, that origami crane in the in the car cart um, with her, and that was something that he was like he had learned how to make from Nanali. Um so that made me think that he might have been in the cart with her, um, even though he you know doesn't obviously say anything and it's um, really ambiguous there. Uh, but I thought that he. Was not not, not I don't know if uh, was still alive, but that he was still communicating with her in some degree. Whether he became like a Gias being, like uh, like C two or V two R, um, or something like that. But I thought that he was still communicating with her somehow. Okay, interesting. I'm kind of like I don't know. I'm kind of split. Like my initial reaction is that like he's still alive. Like let's be honest. Lelouch is smart, and now that he knows, you know, from his mother that transferring your conscious through Gias to another human being so you can stay alive is a possibility, I'm sure he would take it. But a small part of me thinks, like, he's probably so fucking tired after everything that he's been through and all the sacrifices that he's had to make that maybe he just ultimately does want to end it all. Kind of like what Carl said earlier, he's looking to not win the game, he's looking to end the game. And to end it, he needs to also end himself. So I I think if I had to choose, I would say his conscious is still somewhere out there. Who he transferred it to, I have no fucking idea. Um, but a small part of me thinks like maybe he was actually just ready to end it all. Because when you're the biggest villain the world has ever known, even though you are the, the kindest person, maybe not the kindest person, but like your intentions are one of the greatest intentions the world has ever known. It's probably just exhausting at that point, and it's just a good time to go, <laughs> which sounds mm-hmm. really weird. But <laughs> no, I think yeah, that provides a little bit more closure to his story because I guess it would be nice if you know Lelouch lived on as like a, a force ghost or Gias <laughs> ghost, ghost or something, so he can see the fruits of his labor. But to your point, like I said, like you said, um, I think he after the journey he's been through i think he just he just needs his eternal rest at that point so maybe maybe it is c2 just metaphor like yeah metaphorically talking to him um in that final scene yeah and i know like code Geass gets a lot of um comparisons to death note too have you guys seen death note 
We have not, but that is something that we plan to watch very soon. Sneak peek. <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay, then I, won't, I won't bring it up. I was just going to bring up some comparisons between the ending of that and the ending of this. Um, but if you guys have not seen it, then I will not uh, discuss that. <laughs> we'll, have to, we'll have to get your thoughts on that, like um separately when uh when we finally finish death note because I, I would like to to hear that because you, you've always got a really good take on things so yeah so when we get to that point when we finish death note we will circle back with you <laughs> <laughs> sounds good <laughs> um just because i'm on the the wiki for code geass right now this is something i found interesting um for this episode uh because we were talking about the title which was re semicolon and we were like that that doesn't make any sense <laughs> um so it says the episode's title is a play on the words R R E or Ray, which serves as a pun on Ray R E I, the Japanese word for zero, and symbolizes with the semicolon in the title the continuation of Zero's legacy rather than its end. And in uh, Italian, Ray means king. Oh, uh, yeah. <laughs> interesting. I didn't even realize that. Me taking Italian or high school level Italian. <laughs> so it's actually Ray then, not Re. Yeah, Ray, I guess. Oh. Okay. Again, another point that the show is very well written. <laughs> so thank you for that little factoid, Aaron. Yeah, I just noticed that. <laughs> and after our nice lengthy discussion about this terrific show, let's go into our final thoughts for Code Geass R2. Wait, sorry. Code Geass, Lelouch of the Rebellion, R2. <laughs> um, so now that we've all of us have seen this season as a whole, how many don't hate the Flea, hate the games out of 10 would you give this? And I guess what order do you want to go in? Let's have Aaron start, our, our guest of honor. Okay. Aaron, take it away. Uh, yeah, so much like the first season, um, I legitimately just love almost everything about this anime um i can see some people's uh issues that they might have with it or um criticism critiques that some people might have with it but personally i really like it um everything from the story to the music to the animation characters um so i would personally give this a a 10 out of 10 um for me just because it it is kind of like a gold standard anime to me. And like, I, I think I mentioned this in the first uh, podcast I was on that when people are new to anime or are looking for something, I code Geass is usually one of the first ones that I recommend to people um, because from beginning to end, I just think it's great. A code Geass expert through and through. <laughs> <laughs> Should I go next? Yeah, you can go next. Okay. You want to end on a high note, <laughs> but no worries. So my rating is probably not as bad as either of you think, because I would give Code Geass R2 nine. Don't hate the flay. I hate the games out of 10. Wow. <laughs> and I think you mentioned this before. A lot of people, you, or Courtney said that a lot of people end up liking R2 a little bit more than, than season one. Um, which obviously is the case for me here. Uh, so Lelouch, of course, is the standout character of the entire show. And so his watching his tragic downfall leading to a better world served as almost like a sweet poetic justice to his journey 
And like I said before, where the ultimate solution to solving the world's problems is Lelouch removing himself from the solution. And this kind of harkens back to a quote that I believe uh, C2 says at the beginning of one of the episode's intros, which is, those who gain Gias, the power of the king, will walk a path of solitude. So that's kind of like a spoiler in itself, I guess. Um, and, you know, the show addressing the rewards and risks of using an authoritative power like Gias to kind of control and influence the way that people live, but seeing in the end that uh, Lelouch is like refuting and eliminating this power to establish the true free will among society and kind of getting rid of the consequential snowball effects of Gias that we saw again with Yuffie, with Shirley, and then with Suzaku. Um, I guess at times the show and the plot just seem to be fueled on always trying to up its game and creating these sudden twists and turns for the sake of spectacle and for simply blowing our minds. Um, case in point, like why does it feel like only Shirley and Rolo die while the other characters miraculously survive the events of the season to make like a cheeky The Walking Dead reference? Are they hiding under magical dumpsters? <laughs> <laughs> but in certain cases, it, it makes canonical sense. Um, but I guess I thought it was just a little bit ex excessive and it kind of made things underwhelming at a point. But I think if you walk into the show with the understanding that it will be this over-the-top dramatic story about power and revenge and subliminal Pizza Hut advertising. It's just a fun watch that will continuously put you on the edge of your table coon. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> but let's let's round it out with, with Courtney's rating. What would you give this or Code Geass R2 out of 10? So I would give this similar to Aaron, a 10 out of 10. And I think that no show will ever be perfect, but this show comes damn near close to being perfect. Like, yes, there's pacing issues, and yes, there's plot holes and plot armor and, and all this stuff, but when you think about the show as a whole, and you know specifically R2, I, I think that it's just, it's fantastic. And there are a lot of shows that we call classic, like classic anime that, that you need to watch. You have to watch, you know, in order to be, you know, a true anime fan or whatever you want to define that as. Um, and you've got ones that, for the most part, transcend time. So you've got like, you know, the big three, Bleach, Naruto, One Piece, which is still going on. You've got awesome shows like Cowboy Bebop, um, Trigun. But there are very few that are at the level that Code Geass is at. And I, I assume that Death Note is one of them, just based on what I've heard about it. Again, we haven't watched it yet, but we, we plan to soon. Um, I think this would be equivalent to, like, for, you know, recent history, an Attack on Titan. Like, you, you have a lot of really great shows out there right now. Jujutsu Kaisen, My Hero's Back. Um, you know, I could go on and on about it. But none of them are even close to touching Attack on Titan. I feel like that's the same situation with Code Geass, where you've got a lot of great shows that came out right around the same time. A lot of great shows that have come out since then, but none of them are even close to touching Code Geass, except for, again, a show like Attack on Titan. So while there's a lot of great shows that come out, you know, every generation in anime, there are some that are just top tier and I think deserve that, that rating of 10 out of 10. And yes, Code Geass is definitely one of them. So yeah, I think it's fucking awesome. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Jibun, <laughs> yeah. whoa. Jibun, whoa. <laughs> 
So I do want to ask about the continuation of the Code Geass story because I don't know much about it, but there was like that 10-year plan and, and the four movies that came out, I think three of them were recap movies, but they slightly altered the either the timeline or the storyline of Code Geass. And I think the last the last movie, Resurrection, is like a whole new story that takes place right after the events of Code Geass R2. So as much as we can without spoilers, um, Aaron, I believe you mentioned to us, you know, before recording that you have seen that fourth movie, Resurrection. Um, what's the whole deal with these movies? Is it worth watching all four of the movies? Would it just make more sense for someone who wants additional Code Geass content to just watch the fourth movie? Um, you know, asking for a friend because I'm actually asking for myself. I'm interested in watching Resurrection, <laughs> but I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on that? So there's uh yeah there's the three movies and there's also the OVA um Akito the Exiled which I only've seen the first episode of that so far um and that takes place between R1 and R2 um but that was kind of cool but as for the movies uh the the first 3 are technically like recap movies but with slight differences and changes and like added scenes or scenes taken away um it, they're more like recaps I did not watch those three movies before jumping into the fourth one. Um, really, there's just like one major plot change that affects the fourth movie. And other than that, you can pretty much just watch the show and it makes complete sense. Um, and it is a continuation from where R2 leaves off. Um, so I'd say if you like, you want to watch the first three movies, uh, do it. But I don't necessarily think it's necessary other than... You just need to know that there is one really big change that they they altered that is, I guess, canon going forward for the new sequels. Okay, that's good to hear because I hate recaps. <laughs> I'm like, I already watched it. I don't need to see it again. Uh, but that's good to know. So would you recommend watching Resurrection? Is it is it a good movie? Um, did, you know, whatever it does with the storyline, does it do it well? What are your thoughts there? So I really liked it. I actually went and saw it in theaters when it was um, coming out. Uh, I I thought it was really good. I think I like have it as a nine on my anime list. Um, so it wasn't quite as good as like the show, but I still thought it was really good, fun. Um, I liked seeing where it picked up with a lot of the characters, and it kind of goes into um, and answers a lot of the questions that you might have. Uh, like left off from where the show left off. Man, you had to wait like basically ten years then <laughs> for for any questions that were lingering after R two to be addressed in this movie, right? Because I think this movie came out um, twenty nineteen according to Wikipedia. Wow, that recently? Yeah, it's it's pretty new. Um, I think I first saw, saw Code Geass in like I want to say twenty eleven or twenty twelve. So yeah, I had I think I waited like seven and seven or eight years to <laughs> get some of those <laughs> those questions answered it's crazy i only have to wait like a year <laughs> <laughs> um and there's a new movie in the works um supposedly yeah really? actually to to clear up courtney's earlier point i'm, I'm on the wikipedia page right now um, a Code Geass Z of the Recapture anime series set in the alternate universe after the movie Lelouch of the Resurrection was announced in December 2020 as part of a 10-year plan project. So it seems like they are um, revitalizing the 
the story of Code Geass um, for this this new decade. So does it follow? So I get what they mean by, I'm guessing like alternate timeline or whatever, just means like whatever changes happened between the movies and the show. Mm-hmm. Um, so are they are they implying that this is still going to follow the exact same story of resurrection, or is it like? I don't know, like how Game of Thrones has like a spinoff series. This is like a spinoff series. Mm. Yeah, it's not really clear um, with this uh, Wikipedia article because it says set in the alternate universe. Um, I don't know if it if that means like it's an offshoot story or if it's integral to like the story of Lelouch and uh, C two. I guess we'll we'll have to to see with any more upcoming announcements. Yeah, and like it it makes me nervous at first like initially i'm nervous because if it follows the same story um there's only there's so much milking that you can do with a really great story before you start to sour it and i worry that that would be the case but i don't know like maybe based on how resurrection plays out it opens the door for a lot more code content following that same thread but yeah, like you said, we'll have to we'll have to see. We're gonna have to watch Resurrection as soon as possible because now I really want to know what happens. Yeah, and if you like don't want to watch the first three, I mean, you can pretty easily just look up the differences. Like I said, there's like there's really only one major plot difference that impacts Resurrection. Okay, that's good to know. I'll just I'll wiki that shit. I'll just find out that way. <laughs> yeah, and whenever this this anime, our new anime series gets announced. Um, Hopefully we can have you back on to, to discuss it. Oh, with hell us, yeah. Right? That'd be awesome. <laughs> I would love that. <laughs> and on that on that note, before we wrap up here, we just wanted to, again, give a huge thank you to Aaron for once again joining us to discuss this very nostalgic but also very pivotal anime. So, Aaron, thank you. Thank you so yes, much. Yes, thank again. you, Aaron. Thank you for having me. And before you go, Aaron, tell everyone where they can find you or contact you. Probably not literally find you, though, because that would be kind of <laughs> creepy. But, you know, go ahead and, and plug your social media handles and such. Uh, yeah, so you can find me on YouTube at Under the Bun. Um, and you can also find me on Twitter. Let me look it up. I, had, I think I just changed what my, my tag was on there. Uh, it's at UTB underscore Nidstang on Twitter. So you can get me on uh, YouTube at Under the Bun and on Twitter at UTB underscore Nidstang. And we'll make sure to have all of those links available on the show notes for this podcast episode, as well as any social media posts that we have on Instagram and on Twitter. And that wraps up episode 38 of Strictly Anime. If you enjoyed the podcast and would like to support the show, then head over to patreon.com slash the Strictly Series and subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming service so you can be notified when new episodes premiere every Monday. Follow us on Instagram at The Strictly Series and on Twitter at Strictly Series and connect with us there or on our website, thestrictlyseries.com, to share your thoughts on the anime we review. You'll also find more info on Strictly JoJo, our other podcast dedicated to JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. Thank you so much for listening, and as always, stay safe, stay healthy, stay weeb. So again, this is another larger bread com- breadcrumb. Let me say that again because I said breadcrumb. <laughs> breadcrumb. <laughs> oh my god, I'm dying. Okay. <laughs>